We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome everybody, Steve with Sespadel and coming at you with the final series in the Councils of the Church with some council you may have heard once or twice, the Second Vatican Council with Dr. Fimister. Thank you as always. Hello, thank you. Okay, so yeah, Vatican II, the 21st Ecumenical Council and the most recent to date, uh, which is uh, held from the 11th of October 1962 until the 8th of December 1965 and uh, by far the most attended uh, ecumenical council. Um, uh, apparently at its peak, there were about uh, 2,625 bishops um, uh, in, the, in the St. Peter's Basilica. When they held Vatican I, they used one of the transepts of St. Peter's Basilica, um, uh, but for, the, uh, for Vatican II, they used the nave. Apparently there would be a big problem now if they wanted to have all the bishops in the world at an ecumenical council, because basically they'd have to have kind of sort of, you know, World Youth Day style football stadium or something um, in order to get them all in. So I don't know what they're going to do there. Perhaps if COVID sweeps through the Episcopate, they could quickly have an ecumenical council. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> while while it's the manageable numbers. Um, uh, yeah, famously, famously uh, hoped to be a new Pentecost uh, in the life of the church, very optimistic um, uh, ideas uh, around what was going to happen. Um, this is uh, a, a fellow who, who runs the website, the New Liturgical Muse Movement. He occasionally, I've noticed, he occasionally uh, comments on people's posts on Facebook when they're describing particularly calamitous goings on in the, in the church. He always says, uh, welcome to the new Pentecost, TM. It's quite a bit different from the last one, or something along those lines. Um, but uh, yes, she's a bit harsh and sarcastic. Well, we'll see. Um, but the uh, so um, uh, one of the things that um, uh, one of the things that um, causes uh, little sort of strange scruple. Um, about Vatican I and Vatican II is because Vatican I was curtailed uh, very suddenly because of the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, just the day after the um, dogmatic constitution on the papacy, the first dogmatic constitution on the Church of Christ um, was uh, promulgated. Um, and then because of events at the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, when all the preparatory work, we will get to this, all the preparatory work for Vatican II was set aside. So there are all these dead schemas from Vatican I and Vatican II, things that were prepared for the consideration of the Council Fathers, but were never used. And uh, you'll occasionally see people bring them up, you know, as if they're kind of the prince over the water, you know, what might have been sort of thing. 
Um, and uh, in fact, there's some, I don't know if it still publishes it, but in the old days, Tan used to publish a book called, I think, The Church Teaches, which was uh, more or less Denzinger, the big compilation of Catholic doctrines, but rearranged thematically instead of chronologically, which is the way it's actually printed in Denzinger. And uh, they snuck in there the uh, the um, the schema on the church that was going to be considered if Vatican I had carried on, which is a little bit naughty because it's not a magisterial document, it's just something they were going to talk about. Um, although it's jolly interesting um, uh, uh, and handy to have around, to have a look at. Um, and um, uh, in uh, Marcel Lefebvre, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, who famously got very upset about various documents of Vatican, Vatican II and ended up with... Um, difficult relations with various popes uh he um uh, he he published a book called um uh they have uncrowned him in which he complained about the document on religious liberty and and he he includes in that um the schema that would have been used uh that was originally proposed uh, to deal with that question um and was set aside um and um but uh, yeah, I was talking to a, a, a theologian who's a friend of mine, and uh, we were discussing this. And the problem is, you know, what do you do with these things? Because they're not necessarily great. I mean, they, because, okay, they, they might seem as they have many virtues, but providence brought it about that they were never solemnly defined. So, you know, providence probably has its reasons. So, and uh, and I was looking through a few of the other the other schemas and 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 I, I found some things that I was, I thought were not helpful and, and rather, rather, well, they were rather precisely phrased because that was, the, this was, this was a schema for Vatican II because that was more the spirit of the, of the committees that put those schemas together. But they were precisely phrased and said things which I wasn't sure were completely true. So, so I, I you know, um, whatever one thinks of the new Pentecost, um, uh, the um, uh, providence willed and permitted uh, to varying degrees uh, the, its events to unfold, and um, and the Almighty must have his reasons. Um, but we're not going to know what those are for sure until the general judgment. So we'll find out then. Um, but then probably we'll be more embarrassed about everyone finding out about all of our sins. Anyway, Talking about getting your popcorn ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, yeah. So Pius the Ninth, he um, he has to close down Vatican One. When the war breaks out, the French declare war on the Prussians. Um, Napoleon the Third. Uh, who has been more and more favourable towards the church towards the end of his uh, reign? He, he doesn't realise is the end of his reign is very imminent, but it is. Um, uh, has he has um, because his his position has been weakening in various respects in France because he keeps making a mess of various things, um, and uh, so he's he's trying to please the church a bit more, having messed around a lot with the Italian nationalists and uh, and lost big chunks of the papal states through various duplicitous grandstanding manoeuvres in Italy. And, uh, but anyway, he removes his garrison from uh, Rome. And, um, and shortly after that, um, uh, Pius the uh, IX effectively suspends and then does suspend the, um, the council indefinitely. And, um, and the Italian nationalists get ready to invade what's left of the Papal States. And then, uh, Napoleon III is catastrophically defeated at the Battle of Sedan, and uh, in person, he can't escape, his armies are surrounded, and um, 
apparently he's utterly miserable on the evening of the battle he realizes all is lost and uh, he's still alive he thinks he he obviously thinks that his dynasty has some chance of surviving if he were to die nobly in a defeat but if he just survives the defeat it's going to be terrible so apparently the guy who's pretty ancient by this point poor fellow is wandering around the battlefield trying to get shot by the other side <laughs> in the hope that uh, he can die in battle but the prussians do not oblige him and uh, so he's left with a choice between a sort of defense to the death in which he uh, sacrifices for purely political reasons um, uh, for the sake of, of, of how it looks thousands of his own men in a pointless defense of an un, of indefensible position or to actually surrender to the Prussians and in a way it's to his testament you know to his credit that he he does actually surrender to the Prussians it must have been the most awful thing the chap had to do in his whole life and um there's a very interesting drawing from the time of the prussian uh soon to be chancellor of the german empire uh otto von bismarck sitting outside a house chatting with the utterly broken uh, napoleon the third and uh, he was um his dynasty were very rapidly overthrown the third French Republic was declared and uh, he went off to live in exile in Kent in England um, and is buried in the monastery of Farnborough, Farnborough Abbey in Kent as a very grand tomb. Um, and he's still there, despite the attempts of various French officials to get his body back, the abbot um, uh, defends their, their, their the body of Napoleon III and won't give it back to them. Um, uh, so, um, Yes, uh, so this meant that the Italians were, uh, the Italian, the new Italian um, state was able to annex the Papal States sharpish, and so uh, there was very little prospect of the council ever being reconvened. Um, uh, Pius IX was offered this law of guarantees, which basically offered him a deal uh, not that different from uh, what is eventually worked out in the 19, in 1929 between Pius XI and uh, Mussolini, uh, which currently is the arrangement with the Papal States. But it is a law rather than a treaty, I think, that he's offered. And so he thinks it's much too shaky, uh, could be changed by a simple change in government in Italy. And also he's like not willing to just say, oh, yeah, I'll have a little bit back of what you've just stolen off me. And I'll just say that it's okay. He's not willing to do that, which is completely reasonable. So he refuses to accept this, even though he desperately needs the money that he's being offered. Um, and uh, and he um, he uh, um, he becomes the prisoner of the Vatican. So he he won't leave Vatican City, and his successor, when he's elected, never leaves the the, the area of Vatican City ever again for the rest of his life. And as uh, he's the third longest reigning pope in history, that's quite a confined existence uh, from that point onwards. Um, well, I think he's the fourth longest reigning pope in history now, but he was, by the end of his reign, the third longest reigning pope in history. Um, so Pius IX refuses to accept the deal. Uh, he is um, he's stuck there in, uh, in the Leonine city, um, uh, the, the, the bit on the other side of the Tiber. Um, the bit that's surrounded by the walls of St. Peter's. Um, and uh, he lives for another eight years. And um, it's a funny old eight years. Um, 
things are going pretty badly pretty much everywhere. Um, the Austrians were humiliated by the Prussians in the run-up to the Franco-Prussian War when the Austrians were knocked out of German affairs. And there's a big reaction against the church in Austria and that the, emp the emperor is greatly weakened and, um, and anti-clerical measures sort of get through in Austria, um, uh, which isn't great. Uh, the um, Italy, of course, is now, now dominated by this very anti-clerical government. Um, uh, Freemasonry is extremely powerful in Italy at this point. Um, uh, now, France looks like the one hope left for um, Catholic great powers, because although uh, the Third Republic has been declared, in fact, the Second Republic was quite benignly disposed towards the church earlier on. That was uh, the one that turned into Napoleon III's Second Empire because he got elected president. Um, uh, but the Third Republic is 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 going to end up being very, very, very dominated by very anti-clerical and lots of Masonic people. Um, but at the very beginning, um, uh, it doesn't look as if it's going to go quite that way. Um, uh, the, the war goes on. Paris is besieged by the Prussians. Uh, it gets really bad. All children under a certain age die in Paris. Uh, that didn't manage to get out before the siege began. Uh, they end up eating all the zoo animals famously, and uh, yeah, it's pretty grim. And um, and then the just to really humiliate them in 1871, the Prussians proclaim the German Empire. So the the, the King of Prussia becomes German Emperor, um, and he proclaims the German Empire in the Hall of Mirrors in the Palace of Versailles. So it's it's really it's really rubbing their noses in it. And there's a famous painting of this and uh, of, of, of the proclamation of the German Empire and uh, Wilhelm II of Prussia standing up there on the sort of podium and and uh, and, and all, the, all the Prussian soldiers with their swords drawn, raised up towards the stage and Bismarck just standing there looking very smug uh, with his arms folded in, in, in satisfaction. Uh, his brilliant scheming has brought this to a head. And... Um, uh, a colleague of mine, back when I was in Aberdeen University long ago, he, he pointed out, he, he pointed out to a, a German friend of his that um, that it's the only painting of of a moment of national unity or liberation or whatever uh, that he knows of, which is entirely composed of men, entirely on foreign soil. All the men are armed. And, uh, and, the, and uh, yeah, um, and they're, they're actually yeah, they're occupying the the former capital of of, of a defeated neighbouring power, and every single person in the picture is a soldier of one sort or another. So it's, it's much more aggressive and militaristic than most such uh, images. Um, the uh, in fact, not only are they armed, they actually have their swords drawn. There's only about two or three people in the uh, in the picture who don't have their swords drawn. So it was all a bit yes. And they had to pay, the French had to pay massive reparations. And after the the Prussians left, or the Germans as they now were, left, um, the um, uh, a huge revolution kicked off in Paris. It was seized by what's known as the Commune, which is like the one of the, the first uh, since the French Revolution of these ultra-radical sort of murderous, um, uh, really scary presage of things that are going to come. The Archbishop of Paris gets killed. Um, uh, the, the the Tuileries Palace, which had been the residence of the French kings when they were in Paris and of Napoleon III is completely destroyed. So if you go to the Louvre in Paris now, there's these big gardens and last stretch of those gardens are not supposed to be gardens. They were actually a palace, but they, it was completely trashed um, in that revolution. 
but it causes a massive conservative reaction in France and the um, the uh, the revolution is put down with extreme prejudice and uh, lots and lots and lots of people get killed and um, uh, and the the first elections to the new National Assembly of the Third Republic are massively overwhelmingly monarchist and there are there are three three big three factions in the monarchists one is the Orleanists the ones who follow the heir of Louis Philippe the uh, sort of liberal usurper uh, cadet of the um, of the House of Bourbon who took over in 1830 when King Charles X was deposed and then there are those who follow the Comte de Chambord who is the son of uh, Charles the um, Charles X's well he's Charles X's grandson but he um, <clears throat> he um, is uh, and he's the legitimist heir. He's the one who really is the heir to the throne. But he has no kids. Uh, and then there's the 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 followers of the Bonapartes, but they don't have many votes really. Um, so, but together, even just the royalists, not the Bonapartists, together have a, a, a chunky majority in the new legislature. So it looks pretty certain that it's going to go to being a, a monarchy. And the, the reason back, the reason why is because. Um, uh is because if because although the next person in line after the Comte de Chambard is actually the King of Spain but uh that's all a mess at that point uh as we discussed last time the, the, the Spanish royal line is split between two different candidates and has been deposed anyway and it's all a mess um and uh so nobody wants to go there and according to the Treaty of Utrecht you're supposed to skip them anyway it's too complicated to explain at this point. But uh, after the War of Spanish Succession, in exchange for a French prince getting the Spanish throne, he was supposed to promise not to ever take the French throne as well. So the Spanish lot was supposed to be left out. Whether that was legit or not is still a cause of contention. But anyway, at this point, it wasn't that much a cause of contention. So they were agreeing that it would go to the Duke of Orléans after, after the death of the Comte de Chambord, who had no children. So it looked like the Orleanists and the Legitimists could all make friends and that they could easily restore the, um, the monarchy in France. However, they came up against this road, and that looked like, because that was very backed by conservative Catholic forces, and they were very keen that we were going to restore the monarchy and then go off down to Italy and teach those naughty Piedmontese people a lesson and give the Pope back his states. And uh, it was all going to be fine. Whether or not the Prussians were going to agree to that, of course, is another question entirely. But anyway, that was that looked like it, that might happen happen possibly and uh, but it doesn't happen because the Comte de Chambord says he's not having the tricolor he's not having the French flag as we now know it he's not using that under any circumstances because as far as he's concerned he doesn't put it like this because he wouldn't have known about it but as far as he's concerned that's basically the swastika that's the flag used by the psychopaths who murdered everybody during the French Revolution and he's not touching it with a barge pole so he says, uh, but the Orleanists are all about reconciling the early days of the revolution back in 1789 with um, with the uh, with with the monarchy. They they don't want to surrender this flag. So they and but uh, um, Charles the sorry uh, Henry V as he would be if he was put on the throne, Comte de Chambord. Um, uh, he says, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not agreeing to the restoration unless you uh, uh, agree that I'm allowed to use only the old pre-revolutionary royal flag, the Bourbon white and gold, which you can see if you go to Texas. They 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 various parts in Texas they they fly all the flags that have ever flown over Texas and one. Of them is the Bourbon white and gold so you can see it there you never see it flying in France it's probably in a criminal offense in France but um uh so they can't agree on this there's a sort of it uh, at one point the uh the Comte de Chambord actually turns up in person at the um, French National Assembly and goes to see the president 
uh, he turns up in disguise and says and wants the president to just bring him into the chamber so he can be acclaimed and cut through all the arguing but the president won't agree to it even though he's a royalist and um so they they are Manar and they think oh well we'll just wait for the old guy to die and then we'll stick the Orleanist chap on the throne it will be fine but then they lose their majority at the end of the decade and uh, they never ever ever get it back again and the people the, the the actual Republican Republicans who get to run France from that point onwards are bitterly anti-clerical and increasingly so and things get worse and worse and worse for the rest of the century so it's not good so by the end by the time Pius the ninth dies in 1870 uh, you've got the Protestants dominating Germany Austria is in a kind of permanent hangover from everything that went wrong um, uh, France is being taken over by Masonic anti-clericals and Italy already has been taken over by Masonic anti-clericals and because Pius the ninth doesn't want anybody recognizing the new Italian state until they come to him on their knees and beg forgiveness and give him a good deal over the over um, a papal sovereignty. Um, uh, he's he's bans all Catholics from voting in national elections in Italy. So Catholics are not permitted to vote. So 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 the Italian, at least on the national level, the Italian political system is completely handed over to the enemies of the church for decades and decades, and uh, and predictable results ensue. So. Um, that's why basically Pius IX and uh, for a long time afterwards, his successors have no real prospect of ever reconvening Vatican I. Now, in 1878, uh, uh, Vincenzo Giacchino Pecci, I'm probably mispronouncing his name because my Italian is non-existent, but there we are, um, uh, um, is uh, the, uh, Leo XIII is elected Pope. And, um, and he is, I think, there's some controversy here, but I think Leo XIII is a bit of a genius. And I think uh, I am very, uh, very inclined to agree with Hilaire Belloc, who said that he was the greatest Pope since the Reformation. Um, and um, and he basically, uh, he takes the the one thing which the Popes have, have taken with them from the ruins of, of, of everything that happened in 1870, which is uh, the two rather splendid documents of Vatican I, and in particular, the document on papal infallibility. And he he runs with it, and basically a year after he's elected, he issues a very 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 important encyclical. It's one of the great great encyclical, one of the greatest encyclicals of all time, uh, Eterni Patris, on the restoration of the Christian philosophy in accordance with the mind and teaching of the angelic doctor Saint Thomas Aquinas, and um, and basically his plan is to he, the, the Disneyland Christendom that they tried to create in 1815 uh, after the collapse of the revolution, Re French Revolution and the Napoleonic Empire has now fallen to bits. It's, it's completely gone, it's, it's doomed, it's, it's, there's nothing left almost of, of what they tried to create there. And, uh, and so instead of trying to resuscitate um, the Baroque, uh, the Baroque Christendom uh, in a slightly artificial form that was destroyed by the French Revolution, uh, they decide, um, Leo XIII decides they need to create Christendom from scratch according to the original plans, pristine, perfect and glorious. And, uh, and, and the, the blueprints are to be found in the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so, and it's very important for him that um, that we use uh, the, the writings, you know, the, the, the true 
integrated scholastic philosophy, the united faith and reason uh, of high scholasticism uh, expressed by uh, St. Thomas's writings. And, um, and he's going to lay out using St. Thomas as a guide, uh, the basic principles of how society ought to be constructed in accordance with the Catholic faith. And we're just gonna argue for that from scratch. And, uh, and he produces nine more of these, uh, in, well, at the end of his reign, he, he, he writes a letter sort of reviewing his life just a year before he dies. And in that he refers to the principal acts of his pontificate and he lists these 10 encyclicals, which are basically his 10 social encyclicals. Um, and, um, and the first one he lists, he lists them interestingly in a sort of theoretical order rather than in a chronological order. Um, and the first one he lists, although it is chronologically almost the first, is some um, Eterni Patris on Christian philosophy. And then, uh, I'm probably gonna get the order slightly wrong here, but then he has, um, libertas on the true nature of of, of christian liberty because uh, obviously freedom is the is the bogus disingenuous cry of the enemies of the church so he wants to lay out what the true nature of freedom is and then he has an encyclical arcanum on the true nature of marriage because the family is the fundamental unit of society and then he has diaturnum on the on the origin of the civil power he has an encyclical quad apostolici munaris against socialism an encyclical um, humanum genus against Freemasonry, um, he, um, Immortale Dei, uh, which um, explains uh, the obligations of the civil power to the true religion. And uh, then he has, um, uh, let's see, he has, well, famously Rerum Novarum, uh, which is um, about the rights and duties of capital and labor, um, which explains the church's response to both socialism and the um, exploitation of uh, the workers in the current system and um and then finally the crowning uh concluding encyclical is sapientia christiana which is about the obligations of christian citizens and uh, and so together laid end to end these constitute a sort of manifesto for the restoration of christendom and they have an enormous impact um and uh, and i would so 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 he's got i mean he does many other incredibly important encyclicals uh, Providentissimus Deus on the inspiration of scripture, um, uh, uh, Tometsi, uh, which is sort of summary of much of the themes of those other texts, which comes at the very end of the 19th century. But he, um, so, so there's, there's, there's many more encyclicals by Leo that, that are very important, but this, this sort of programmatic, as it were, social and political manifesto of 10 encyclicals are, are, are very important and, and really give a kind of unity of action and vision to, um, to the Catholic church and to the, and to the laity. And uh, so I would argue and have argued that, that really the period 1878 to 1958, so 80-year period, constitutes the sort of Leonine era in which the policy of Leo to, to argue from the abstract to uh, a, a, an ideal model of Christendom it, on the back of a vigorously pursued um, uh, Thomism uh, is, is, is a very distinct era in the history of the church. And it is very noticeable that, um, that the, the endless defeats that go up to 1878 start to turn around. Now it takes a while to sort of turn, turn things around, but, but the effects are eventually very dramatic. Um, so, 
uh, in the immediate aftermath of German unification, Bismarck tries to sort of stigmatize and drive Catholicism out of um, German public life. And he launches this thing called the Kulturkampf, uh, the, the culture war, which is where the expression culture wars, which one here is used often, uh, actually comes from originally is Bismarck's campaign against the Catholic Church. And um, but things turn around in Germany relatively quickly, um, uh, really because the laity organize themselves. They're like, they work out that, that they're, if they're organized enough and faithful enough and orthodox enough, uh, that they're, although they're a minority, they're so huge a group in Germany, even the, the Catholics, even though they're a minority in, in, in the Germany from which Austria has been excluded, um, they are nevertheless uh, big enough that it will be impossible to easily form any kind of government in the new Reichstag, the new German parliament, uh, without their cooperation. So they form themselves into this political party called the Zentrum, or the Centre Party, and uh, in the end, Bismarck ends up being so terrified of the socialists that he has to go cap in hand to the Zentrum and do whatever they want. So the Zentrum become very, very powerful in Germany. And although Germany is dominated by the Hohenzollern dynasty, who are the original Protestant dynasty, who founded the first ever Protestant state, and are not uh, do not have a warm place in the hearts of Catholics, uh, nevertheless, uh, the Catholic Church ends up after the Kulturkampf peters out, Bismarck has to calm himself down and start being more cooperative with the Catholic Church in Germany. And uh, the church manages to find for itself quite a nice, comfortable position there. Likewise, in Britain, so, so although the greatest powers in the world at this point are now, are now non-Catholic powers, uh, Britain, Germany, and the emerging United States of America, um, and, uh, but in all of them, the Catholic Church is expanding uh, and is organizing itself effectively and with a sort of triumphalist vision and, uh, and, and is getting what it wants out of the civil power because they're, they're increasingly frightened of how strong the church is. And, uh, and the new sort of self-confidence about, about the unity of faith and reason and the vision of, 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 uh, of Christian political order that, that Leo XIII is expanding gives great strength to the church in all of these areas. Now, um, the, it's easier in Britain and Germany because you can just sort of, you know, pray for the conversion of the benighted Protestant monarch and get on with things. There isn't really a, a big problem with the civil order as such, other than that it's Protestant. Uh, if you just switch the religion out, uh, then it would be okay. Um, the US always poses the challenge that um, uh, is the US is, 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 is among modern states ignoring things like the Soviet Union. Uh, is a uniquely uh, ideological uh, entity in the sense that it, you know it's a very much very clear body of ideas, very recently formulated back at the end of the 18th century, which um, which was behind the emergence of the United States, and uh, and Catholics don't really have any great difficulty with most of the uh, of the institutions created um, at the U.S. founding, um, but with the exception of viewed in a certain way, the First Amendment and the idea of religious neutrality. And um, Leo XIII devotes uh, a particular special encyclical Longinqua um, uh, to this topic, which he writes to the American bishops, to warn them uh, that they shouldn't, it's, it, that, that yes, you're in a very religiously mixed society, Catholics are not the overwhelming majority, they're not even the majority, um, and, um, but, uh, and you have the, the institutions of a well-ordered republic and the church is flourishing um, in, uh, in that context, but you must remember that ultimately Christ the King has rights 
over uh, the civil order and you're not in a position to yield him those rights at the moment but you mustn't forget that when you are in a position to yield him those rights you need to do so um and if because if you do lose sight of that then it'll all turn to dust and ashes basically I'm, I'm being a bit more poetic than he is in the passage but that's more or less what he says um and uh, so but for the time being Catholics are not, although they can they can imagine it in the distant future, but they're not within striking distance of being a majority. Um, and uh, there is eventually he has to issue an encyclical against a uh, heresy called Americanism um, uh, just five years later, uh, where uh, against those bishops, he doesn't name the bishops, uh, he allows them to quietly retire their dodgy positions on the subject, hopefully. Um, uh, but um, uh, those who would want to just take on the entire Enlightenment philosophy behind the institutions without qualification. Um, and that's going to become a problem at Vatican II and just beforehand. Um, uh, but for the time being, uh, mostly Leo XIII seems to manage to contain the problem. And because he so strongly reasserts the vision of, Christi of a Christian political and civil order, um, uh, things are doing okay. Now, one of the uh, one of the funny things about papal infallibility and the the funny situation that it puts um, the the papacy in is that you would have thought that the popes would start pumping out endless infallible documents now that nobody could question uh, the um, the legitimacy of their uh, of, the, of their right to do so because an ecumenical council had endorsed it. Excuse me. Oh. But in fact, they don't do that, and that's this has remained the case. Um, over the course of the uh, of the 20th, 21st centuries. Instead, they pump out vastly more non-infallible documents. Um, and this is a um, and this is a, a strange process that, that begins back in the middle of the 18th century with uh, a, a pope, very erudite and, uh, and, and admirable pope called um, Benedict XIV. And he's the first one who really um, sort of adopts the encyclical letter as, as a genre. Um, uh, of this kind of a long exposition of teaching that isn't doesn't contain infallible teaching addressed to the universal church. Now, previously, in general, popes had only really addressed the whole church in order to make universal laws or to uh, or to make definitive teachings, and um, uh, and of course, and they were quite cautious about doing this because. Um, uh, before Vatican I, there was a lot of difficulty with temporal powers influenced by Gallicanism, who didn't like the idea of papal infallibility, and uh, there was a danger they'd refuse to allow the papal bull in question to be promulgated in their territory because they didn't want to accept the things that it taught, because they seemed to imply too much power to the papacy, which they resented. And so the popes were not keen to be pumping out documents left, right and centre because each one could potentially lead to a damaging conflict with uh, slightly dodgy Catholic rulers. Um, uh, and so it's probably slightly in that context that the, the idea of an encyclical letter starts to appear where the pope doesn't claim that the teaching is infallible, uh, but does just sort of share his views with the universal church, uh, shares his fallible teaching with the universal church. Now, of course, this kind of teaching enjoys a very strong presumption of reliability. We're not supposed to just sort of set it aside or anything like that, uh, or even uh, without really being pushed to it, uh, think that there's error contained in it. Um, 
so I mean, it's it's not as if uh, this is these these kind of teachings are to be sniffed at. And as I say, the encyclicals of Leo the Thirteenth Reign are, are masterpieces. But it is a bit weird because we do actually have something instituted by Christ to teach the entire universal church in a fallible way. And it's called the Episcopate. So it's not entirely clear what the popes are doing, pumping out all of these fallible and, and increasingly long teachings. Now, earlier on, they usually contain some kind of infallible teaching. Um, the first really notable uh, encyclical to to. Uh, to teach at length and then never define anything is probably Marari Vos, um, an encyclical of um, Pope Gregory XVI, uh, in which he's getting very annoyed with various revolutionary and, and anti-clerical forces uh, besetting the papal states at that time in the 1830s. Um, but after Vatican I, uh, the popes go kind of nuts with pumping out these cyclicals and they get more and more and more and more of them and they get longer and longer and longer and longer. And um, yet yeah, it's not really clear. And Newman had expressed some concern when articulating his inopportunist position on Vatican I that, um, that no one would pay any attention to anything but infallible teachings of the pope once. But instead it kind of works out the other way around in that in that the popes become much more nervous, apparently. Uh, they, they don't want people to only pay attention to their infallible teaching, so they, 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 they splurge on, 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 on what's later called uh, merely authentic teaching. Um, and yeah, and, and the initial splurge is, is, is unbelievable because it's wonderful, because as I say, Leo XIII's encyclicals are absolutely amazing. But it forms part of a tendency towards a kind of Napoleonic papacy. Oh, the papacy is like the Pope's literally a prisoner inside the Vatican, and he has one last amazing power that he has had absolutely confirmed by Vatican I, and he's going to use it. So uh, they start doing sweeping changes. And as things get worse in France, um, eventually in 1905, uh, this, this after Leo XIII's death, uh, there's this law of separation, which repudiates the Concordat that Napoleon had concluded with the Pope uh, Leo, uh, Pius VII back in 1801, which had uh, turned the, the French church into a sort of official church of the French state, but still in communion with the Pope, and uh, had given the French state a lot of powers to nominate bishops. And so weirdly, for the last decades of the 19th century, when the um, when the, the the French governments are increasingly hostile towards the church, they're still very much involved in nominating the bishops. But eventually, in 1905, as the result of a, of a big scandal over a, over a, um, a Jewish officer who gets uh, apparently wrongly convicted of treason and then is sent off to you know a lifetime's hard labour and is finally vindicated, and a lot of Catholics. Um, uh, are offended at the suggestion that, that he was wrongly convicted and it becomes very wound up and bound up with lots of unfortunate things. The anti-clericals signed side very much with this chap and the and, and, and some anti-Semitic elements in the Catholics uh, are very much against him, uh, not entirely for wholesome and good reasons. Uh, and in the end, he's vindicated and it makes the church and lots of lay Catholics look stupid. And, and it, uh, it look, he leads to big victories for the anti-clerical groups in the French legislature. And in 1905, they managed to repudiate the Concordat. Um, and the result is that the popes end up with the power to appoint the church in France is in terrible state, but the, the popes end up with the power to appoint all the bishops 
just as they wish, because the French state's not even recognizing the Holy See anymore, even not even recognizing the French church as a corporate entity. And this sort of thing goes on all over the place as secularism spreads over the end of the 19th century and the 20th century, that the papacy ends up appointing all the bishops in the world eventually, which is very odd. People assume that that's kind of just normal now. And, and they look back at, at previous history of the church and they think, uh, gosh, uh, you know, all these terrible anomalies happening left, right and centre. And so you realise, no, this isn't, this isn't the anomaly, this is the norm. So, so for the first thousand years, uh, either the bishops were elected according to the ancient method by the clergy and the people, or they were appointed effectively by some local ruler. Then um, the, the Gregorian reform movement that, that, um, that we talked about many, many, many months ago now, um, around uh, Lateran I, uh, manages to wrest back control uh, it, for the sake apparently of defending the freedom of elections. But in the end, it ends up with papal appointments going all over the place. And as the papacy gets weaker towards the end of the Middle Ages, they start to actually just appoint whoever the temporal ruler tells them to. So, so, but through all of this, you rarely, except for the sake of handing out sinecures to curial officials, you rarely, you don't really have popes just routinely and freely appointing all the bishops in the church, and nobody even really thinks that's how it's supposed to be. But, uh, but by the time um, Christendom completely collapses at the end of the 19th century and the, and the beginning of the 20th century, uh, it's so long ago since we had elected bishops anywhere that instead what happens is it defaults to the Pope appointing all the bishops and nobody really notices or thinks about the fact that that's a bit odd and not really how things were supposed to be. And what it means is, is that it seems to work for the, for the time being, right? It, seem, it, it looks like, um, you know, that's great. The Pope's infallible. He's got special gifts from the Holy Spirit. He's going to appoint all the bishops uh, and, and, we, and we can be confident with that. And we will carry on triumphantly um, preaching the truth in the face of, of hostile modernity and making more and more converts. And, uh, and eventually we will reconquer Western civilization for the church. And it looks like it's fine. But... The problem is that we've kind of bet absolutely everything on the prudential decisions of the popes at this point. More and more and more, we're completely relying on that succeeding as a formula. And, and, and our Lord didn't actually promise uh, any kind of special protection for the prudential decisions of popes. Now, it, it, it's, it's no doubt true that he gives graces, special graces to the popes um, in order to help them, but he doesn't guarantee that he, they're gonna make use of those graces uh, so uh, and we know, of course, from previous church history that have been catastrophic prudential decisions with appalling consequences in the past that have dragged on over decades and centuries and and done enormous harm, as uh, as Cardinal Pole famously explained at the beginning of the Council of Trent. Uh, he, you know, he said, "Well, we're living in the middle of a massive car crash, chaps, and it's our fault." He says at the beginning of, of the Council of Trent, um, and um, so so we know. Not only is there no verse you can point to in the New Testament where the prudential decisions of popes are guaranteed by our Lord. But we know from the previous history of the church that they've gone very badly wrong for long periods of time in the past. But everyone sort of forgot about that in the in the sort of ultramontane euphoria, um, uh, the sort of martyred Pius IX and the and the heroic Leo XIII and everybody's just sort of, you know, and then of course Leo XIII is succeeded by St. Pius X. So, you know, it just gets even more amazing. Um, uh, so, so, so everybody's thinking, you know, that we, we just bet everything on the papacy and it'll all be fine. 
And so the popes start doing things which, which you could never really imagine them doing before. So in 1917, um, uh, Pius the, well, Pius, Pius the uh, Pius the tenth is dead by then, but but Pius the tenth in his pontificate starts to reform the whole of canon law, and essentially he just scraps it and enacts a code. Now up to that point, uh, the code ends up being enacted by his successor because it's not finished by the time he dies. But I mean, it, it's his his project in origin. But the um, but up to that time, canon law had just accumulated, you know, different local councils and popes had issued decretals and, and canon, disciplinary canons, and it just sort of accumulated in layers, you know, like geology. Um, and, uh, and, and you had a huge body of canon law, the corpus, corpus juris canonici, um, it built up over all of these centuries. And uh, you could never have got rid of it because, I mean, one of the big disputes with the Gallicans was about whether or not the Pope had the power to sweep away canonical custom and canonical norms and all that kind of thing. But uh, but all of that settled that the Pope has universal ordinary jurisdiction by Vatican I. And so this, this allows for uh, dramatic innovations in canon law. Now, I say dramatic innovations, the 1917 Code is largely enacting the same sorts of provisions as were in place beforehand in a much more logical way so they're all contained in one book um but that's still very dramatic and the sort of thing that no pope would ever have considered beforehand and is 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 a striking use of his of his of his powers as defined by vatican one and vatican one is 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 more cautious in a way it, it talks about it quotes a famous letter from gregory the great to the patriarch of alexandria in which he says um you know, the, the purpose of the papal primacy is to ensure that the ordinary functioning of every all the other bishops is not messed around with by anybody. It's not there in order to suddenly dominate everybody else. Um, and uh, so, but but this is sort of forgotten about a little bit. In fact, a, a, a lot of, um, uh, in the euphoria of Vatican I, there's a lot of nuance in what Vatican I said, both about the teaching authority of the Pope and about the way in which his powers should be exercised which is completely forgotten about, and it just becomes sort of papolatry uh, of one sort or another. So we have a completely new body of canon law. Um, we have uh, a huge new tidal wave of fallible uh, papal teaching addressed to the universal church being pumped out. All of it's marvellous, <coughs> as I say, but, but it's not guaranteed just like the Pope's prudential decisions are not guaranteed. So, you know, the Pope doesn't invoke the conditions which are described in Vatican I. There are, you know, there are graces there for him to use, but they're not guaranteed in the same way that if if, that if he ticks the four boxes uh, listed by Vatican I for infallible teaching, it's not guaranteed. Um, there are one or two things that Leo XIII uh, does which are infallible, most Gloriously, uh, he solemnly defines the invalidity of Anglican orders, but in general, he's, he's not pumping out infallible documents at all. And um, so, uh, now this is another another innovation uh, which Pius X uh, introduces is uh, the new breviary, uh, the divine office for the clergy in the Roman Rite, um, and again the 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 original breviary of the Roman Rite is very, 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 very ancient. Um, the idea of sort of radically reforming it would have seemed unthinkable only a few decades earlier. 
again, apparently like the 1917 Code of Canon Law, it's it's very clever, a bit of a masterpiece. Pius the tenth new breviary. He 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 carefully arranges the psalms. He's worried about ordinary parish priests being exhausted with with uh, celebrating the office and trying to combat you know Freemasonry and 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 stave off lapsation and uh, and and teach their punters to sing Gregorian chant as he has as he has uh, recently and commendably insisted that they should. Um, uh, and he's thinking, well, you know, this, this office is very difficult and unwieldy, and so he. Um, he creates this new version of the divine office, uh, which is uh, tweaked a bit more towards the Benedictine, but he also uh, tries to use only each psalm is only used once. So he's trying to preserve the ancient principle that you should that you should you should uh, recite all the psalms in the Psalter in one week. But in order to ensure that the office isn't bigger than it needs to be, he he tries to make sure that we don't reuse the psalms. Um, and so we use each one of them just once. And apparently it's all very clever, but it is also another enormous innovation in something which would have been thought to be completely unchangeable uh, only a few decades earlier. There's there's a story, to, I think it might be a bit of an urban legend because I've seen it attributed to lots of different popes. But anyway, there's a story that Pius IX, most versions you hear it's Pius IX, that he was petitioned by uh, some uh, pious faithful uh, to add St. Joseph to the canon of the mass. And Pius IX, or Leo XIII or Pius XI, depending on which version you read, is supposed to have replied, uh, I can't do that. I'm just the Pope, um, uh, which is a remarkable statement. I mean, as to say, it's a bit of an urban myth, but but I mean, it does reflect more of the sense of what what were the limits of papal activity before the um, before Vatican I uh, defined universal ordinary jurisdiction and and infallibility and and this kind of idea of the Pope as the Napoleonic imperial ruler of the church began to really sink in to the minds of the faithful anyway so um so but nevertheless uh the prudential decisions are pretty good coming from these popes and um and, and the strategy is is largely working um and uh as i say the direction of travel up until 1878 seems to be being turned around so um by the by the by the eve of vatican ii um uh the, all the major European countries that are outside of communist control are um, either run by Catholic governments or if they're not majority Catholic countries, the Catholic Church is increasing at a dramatic rate and it's not inconceivable that they might be majority Catholic countries in, in the not too distant future. Um, so, so there is a, a dramatic transformation under this Leonine program of the fortunes of the church and with the very sort of um, uh, leading from the front uh, assertive papacy um, is really, really seems to be succeeding. Um, however, there are all sorts of clouds on the horizon. And um, uh, one of them, which I think Catholics tend to underestimate, is the impact of uh, Darwin. So, so uh, a lot of Catholics tend to think that um, uh, that we don't want to do a Galileo with Darwin, right? This is a, 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 a reaction of a lot of Catholics, and they're, so they're not uh, right. Right from back to when he starts publishing the uh, the Origin of Species and then the Descent of Man, um, uh, and so they they don't they're not keen to rush headlong into endorsing or adopting Darwin's positions. And in fact, um, 
uh, some of those schemas of Vatican I that were never properly considered or voted on uh, would have um, would have prevented the endorsement of some Darwinian positions. Um, uh, but as I say, they were never never voted on. Um, but um, uh, but there is a there is there's a reluctance to just sort of shoutily denounce uh, Darwin's positions um, uh, because you know people got their fingers burnt over um, geocentrism in the 17th century and nobody wants to go through that again and um, and so lots of clever people think of ways in which you could tweak Darwinian narratives of human origins in such a way as to make them not incompatible with the with Catholic teaching and uh, as those who are not very keen on Darwin and uh, um, will point out they're slightly contrived and uncomfortable some of these uh, some of these um, uh, reconciliations of Darwinism and uh, and Catholic teaching and they're not they're also uh, if they're pursued as a sort of methodological necessity they would fall into heresy because Vatican I, as we discussed last time, defined that you mustn't, you cannot alter the meaning of the teachings of the church in order to accommodate the progress of science. That's condemned by Vatican I. But uh, there's this general atmosphere of not wanting to, to have a head-on collision with the new Darwinian, uh, Darwinian account of human origins, <clears throat> even among people who don't particularly like it and are assuming that it's going to get refuted in the end. They just want to be a little bit more cautious about that. And because they either, some of them don't just don't believe in it, or they think that it is reconcilable as a push, um, people don't really realise, uh, I think, what a malign influence the sort of evolutionary way of looking at things is having across the church. Um, because um, uh, if you'll remember, before Vatican I, uh, there was this big conflict between those who were reviving scholasticism, who are now very much in the saddle under Leo XIII, and uh, the German academics who, um, and I should say in defence of the Germans, that a number of the great figures in the revival of scholasticism are also German, um, but there's the German academics who, um, who, who, who see scholarship historical scholarship um and uh viewed very much as a science in the model of the natural sciences um as the as the real queen of of of, of the sciences rather than scholastic syllogizing um uh, traditional catholic theology um which is as i say what's being promoted by leo the 13th and <clears throat> so the this um the sort of uh the german academic um, uh, school, as it were, is very much on the back foot after Vatican I. Dollinger, the, their, their great cheerleader, who was radically opposed to the definition of papal infallibility, ends up being excommunicated for refusing to accept the definition of papal infallibility. Uh, he just sort of lives on his own as an excommunicated individual, but a, a large trunk of, um, of, of German liberal Catholics um, uh, go off and form this old Catholic church, which rapidly becomes ultra-liberal uh, because of their refusal to accept Vatican I. Um, but of course, that kind of worldview, although it's out in the cold in regard to the church, because a, a very scholastic papacy is in charge of everything, um, is still out there. And uh, they are emboldened in their own self-belief by, um, by the rise of Darwinism. 
and um and they start to evolve this um sort of alternative version of catholicism uh, that, that completely and systematically rejects the the clear and unchanging definitions of uh, of neo-scholastic Catholic theology, and they make use of the theology of a, a, a an ultra liberal Lutheran um, from the beginning of the 19th century called Friedrich Schliermacher, um, uh, which actually means veil maker, which uh, led to a number of puns because he was the enemy of revelation, people suggested, because, you know, God reveals and Schleiermacher reveils, um, and, um, and and they're not wrong. So, so his idea is basically that he's a Protestant, but he's very influential. And his idea is that um, really, uh, instead of divine revelation coming to you proclaimed by authorized ambassadors of the incarnate deity and their successors, i.e. the apostles and the bishops. Um, uh, instead, divine revelation is something that's already deep inside you. It's something called God consciousness, which is an inner feeling that you are already, you know, you're already a, 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 an infant God. Every human being is a kind of infant God and, uh, and is slowly developing into, uh, into a sort of participant in deity uh, through his own nature. And that Christ is, uh, is very in a very real sense. When a liberal cleric prefaces something with in a very real sense, you mean no, not really is what he means, um, is in a very real sense God and the Son of God, because he was the one who before, uh, before all others uh, truly had this sense of God consciousness to the highest possible degree. And, uh, and, and, and it was so absolute and perfect in, in Jesus of Nazareth that his influence rippled out across the centuries and drew others into his God consciousness and helped the infant God within them to be born, right? Um, and that, that ultimately um, uh, dogmatic formulae are not, uh, are not chunks of truth um, uh, revealed by God, adherence to which allows justification and participation in the divine nature, which we are not owed and which comes to us from outside, as uh, we might think they are from the church's teaching and the New Testament. But in fact, uh, they are um, the, what there is, is sort of chimneys that, that, that fan the flames of this of this divinity that is already in us because we're just human because human beings are infant gods um and and and, and so they're, they're more like poetry uh, than than definitions and so the fact that they're not always completely compatible with each other allegedly um uh, uh is not a problem uh because uh we, we don't mean them literally um and uh, of course one of the one of the uh the key things which the uh, these chaps want to set aside is the idea of the absolute inerrancy of scripture um and uh, which is why in 1893 leo the 13th issues his encyclical providentissimus deus on the inerrancy of scripture in which he very forcefully reasserts the unlimited inerrancy of scripture as uh, a very beautiful famous passage where he says um the books whole and entire with all their parts which the church receives as sacred and canonical were written at the dictation of the holy spirit and have god as their author and it is therefore as impossible for them to contain error as it is impossible that God, the first truth, should be the author of any error whatsoever. And he insists this is the ancient and unfailing faith of the church. Right. So uh, Providentissimus Deus, very important text, um, but it's very much ri arising from the from the uh, 
the atmosphere of he can feel this creeping like a mist creeping around his knees um this idea that oh yes the bible is so wonderful you know it's so much better than the iliad hang on what do you mean it's so much better than the iliad um uh, so so because what they think is it's it's a it's a form of poetry um which has truths to tell us very real truths uh, which will which will fan the flame of divinity within us into a raging furnace and isn't that marvelous but what they really mean is it's it's all a load of rubbish basically and uh, it's quite nice it's a nice fairy story that is edifying um <clears throat> and um so this does this this heresy doesn't which is really the synthesis of all heresies as far as the 10th is going to point out it doesn't yet have a name at this point under leo the 13th but um he can see it coming and uh, and he establishes in 1902 just the year before he dies the pontifical biblical commission which in 1972 is stripped back to just being a sort of think tank talking shop um uh thing with no authority but in uh, in from 1902 until 1972 is a um is a sort of uh sub department of the holy office or as it is subsequently renamed the congregation for the doctrine of the faith whose job it is to um slap down um uh, various claims about the unreliability of uh, parts of scripture or the fact that they're not really written by who the council of trent said they were written by people seem to think that there's a lot of wiggle room about who wrote the various books of scripture and there is a tiny bit of wiggle room but there isn't much because in fact the decree on the canonical scriptures of the council of trent lists the authors of a large chunk of of the bible so so in fact catholics are not at all free to just uh, dispense with the traditional claims of authorship but everybody seems to have forgotten this but there we are um and uh, and the pontifical biblical commission um uh, is quite devoted in its early years to reasserting these traditional positions so then leo the 13th dies uh, Pius X is elected Pope. He doesn't reign for very long, just 1903 to 1914. Um, but obviously, he's a sort of volcano of sanctity, and um, uh, and is uh, and and very much takes up this this business of leading from the front. And uh, and he seems to have had. I mean, everyone, everyone, well, everyone, not everyone, but I mean, there's this famous. Um, story which seems to have some historical basis but it's difficult to pin down of leo the 13th vision of terrible times approaching for the church which according to some accounts happened exactly 33 years before the apparitions in fatima um uh, but it's it's there's, there's an interesting book on the subject i'm afraid i apologize to him but i can't remember the name of the author but um uh, which um which uh, tries to sift through all the different accounts of, of this and work out what the historical core of the account is. But it's, uh, when you read Pius X's first encyclical, you, it makes you think that he's had some sort of vision as well, because, I mean, he says that this is, he says, so this is his opening encyclical of his reign. He says, he's describing all the terrible problems that the church has. There's also a, a rather good rule of thumb in church history, which is that if conciliar or papal documents begin by saying how terrible everything is, then things are about to get better because people are facing up to the real problems existing in the church. Whereas if they begin by saying how marvelous everything is, then you know that we're in very serious trouble and we're, we're, we're sunk in a, in a terrible period of decline. Um, but anyway, uh, so he says in the, so he's describing how awful everything is in, uh, in, in his 1903 encyclical, A Supremi, uh, the beginning of his pontificate. And he says, uh, when all this is considered, there is good reason to fear 
lest this great perversity may be, as it were, a foretaste and perhaps the beginning of those evils which are reserved for the last days, and that there may be already in the world the son of perdition, of whom the apostle speaks. Such in truth is the audacity and the wrath employed everywhere in persecuting religion, in combating the dogmas of the faith, in brazen effort to uproot and destroy all relations between man and the divinity, while on the other hand, and this according to the same apostle is the distinguishing mark of Antichrist, man has with infinite temerity put himself in the place of God, raising himself above all that is called God in such wise that although he cannot utterly extinguish in himself all knowledge of God, he has condemned God's majesty and as it were made of the universe a temple wherein he himself is to be adored. He sitteth in the temple of God showing himself as if he were God. He quotes there from St. Paul's description of the Antichrist in, in 2 Thessalonians. So, you know, Pius X does not think things are all happy and lovely at all. No, sir. Um, and, um, uh, and it's interesting the way he makes that distinction between, um, on the other hand, there's this massive uh, attack on, on, on all forms of religion. On, uh, and then on the other hand, there's this attempt to turn man into a god who is to be worshipped in the universe as his temple. And, uh, and I think this is really the unravelling of, 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 uh, of a problem that goes all the way back to the 14th century. Um, this idea that, um, that man, that was, that was, that was uh, I'm afraid, promoted by Scotus, that, that, uh, of, a, of a natural appetite for, for the supernatural um, in man, which creates the problem that if that god if 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 god had made man such that he naturally desires the the vision of god the the supernatural end then god would owe it to his own justice to give it to man and that would make man already somehow divine now scotus is is a, is a sensible enough chap to realize that we can't have that um uh, but so to, in order to avoid that he he tries to water down the uh, traditional idea of a debitum nature that that god would not create a universe with fish but no water uh, but that leads him to set aside the necessity of the of the um, cardinal virtues and of the uh, second table of the law for salvation and then it leads Occam uh, to set aside uh, the, the, the necessity of anything to have full voluntarist doctrine whereby things are right and wrong just because God feels like making them right and wrong and uh, and eventually that leads that leads into nominalism and contractualism and Lutheranism and so all the horrible things that have, have, have led to, you know, the Pope being a prisoner in the Vatican and Freemasons rampaging all over the place, they probably unfold from uh, the attempt to avoid the pantheistic consequences of, um, of saying that man has a natural uh, desire for the... Um, for the uh, uh, an unelisted natural desire for the uh, supernatural end, um, uh, which arising from these uh, um, rival positions of the different religious orders in scholasticism in the beginning of the 14th century. Um, but of course, you could take the other road, the road that they didn't travel, which is to just embrace and accept the pantheistic consequences of such a claim. And that is basically the heresy that um, uh, Schleiermacher was promoting and which Pius X is describing this, the, the idea of man as God in the universe as his temple. There are these two sort of uh, two um, opposed horrific monstrous heads of modernity um, and so Pius, the, uh, Pius X eventually decides to give it a name and uh, appropriately enough he calls it modernism and uh, and he issues this encyclical and um 
uh, Pashendi, which is essentially infallible from start to finish because later on, three years later, he's going to impose it on the entire episcopate as uh, under, under oath that they agree to the, um, the condemnations and the teachings contained in the encyclical Pashendi and in the accompanying syllabus of the errors of the modernists, which he produce, produces. And so um, having compelled the entire episcopate to accept this teaching under oath, uh, it essentially turns it into an infallible definition and uh, and the oath itself into a, into a, a creed. Um, so, um, uh, so Pius X lays out, um, and there's lots of uproar about this, and to this day people who don't like it always put the term modernism in speech marks when they write about it, because Pius X goes into enormous detail about the nature of this heresy, which he calls the synthesis of all heresies and the forerunner of the Antichrist, so we're not holding back here. Um, and um, uh, and it is this, it's the other half of this, this error concerning a natural appetite for the supernatural, um, uh, which embraces it as a, as a pantheistic claim. Um, and, um, uh, and so Pius X is very vigorous. As I say, it, it sounds like he's had some kind of vision or something, because he really has a sense that calamity is on the horizon. And he has these kind of diocesan watch committees, which are set up all over the church of basically people who are considered reliable by the Holy See and to answer to the famously holy uh, Secretary of State, Cardinal Mary Del Val, under Pius X. And they, they, they keep an eye on people who are suspected of being modernists in their different dioceses. So, I mean, it's pretty draconian stuff. And um, and he um, uh, it's interesting. The use of the oath is is to try and get round a problem with dealing with modernism, which is that normally when you're trying to get rid of a heresy, what you do is is you come up with uh, a, a a definitive statement of the church's belief uh, in creedal form or anathemas or whatever, and you require that the people that, that either everybody or the people who are suspected of holding it have to adhere to this definitive statement and the ones who refuse to do so you get rid of and then that's it you're fine that's the plan usually works eventually after a, a little bit of, of screaming and shouting um but it but it, it doesn't you can't do that with the modernists you see because for them when they recite the creed i remember seeing an interview on the television where i was a kid with an with an anglican vicar who's an atheist and, uh, and they were asking him you know how do you feel you're not ashamed to, to say the creed there in your anglican church on sundays he says oh no no for me it's a beautiful piece of poetry which i'm proud to recite okay so this is basically the the, the modernist position right they for them the creedal statements are just wonderful poetry which fans the flames of the infant god within them and um and so so they're not being duplicitous uh, so so Pius X tries to ramp it up by producing this very very explicit um oath uh, which which is is clearly uh, specifically designed to deny everything that they are holding in the hope that just shame will cause them not to be willing to take the oath and it has some effect but it, it doesn't it's not perfect and and the problem is that of the nature of it um, I don't mean the oath isn't perfect, but I mean the, the the strategy of trying to drive them out through sheer weight of embarrassment at their own hypocrisy um, has some effect, but only limited effect. As the Darcyson Watch Committees bear witness, they're there to, to, to sniff out the ones who aren't too embarrassed to take the oath. 
And uh, but then um, oh, at the very end of Pius the Pius the Tenth's reign, he tries to ramp up. He already in Pascendi says, you know, when we say scholasticism, we mean Thomism. And anybody who doesn't agree with Saint Thomas, particularly on metaphysics, is always suspect regarding the faith. So he's ramping up even more intensely. Um, Leo the Thirteenth's um, uh, promotion of Saint Thomas and the Pontifical Biblical Commission under Pius the Tenth is pumping out lots of decrees concerning what you're not allowed to hold concerning the origin of Scripture and the, the literal truth of different passages. And so, you know, he's he's using every weapon at his disposal. Um, at the same time as ramping up this centralization, as, as we've discussed, uh, and then at the very end of his reign, he issues an encyclical called, called Doctoris Angelici in which he basically says that the fundamental principles in St. Thomas Aquinas's philosophy are not to be questioned. And, uh, and, if, and if you don't accept them, you basically won't understand the meaning of the words in which the magisterium has defined Catholic doctrine. And, uh, and this is the flip side of, uh, of what Vatican I says about not changing the meaning of the church's teaching uh, in, as a result of the progress of science, right? He's saying there is, there is a perennial philosophy uh, that which, is, which constitutes, as he, as he puts it, the whole foundation of natural and divine science, um, uh, which, is, uh, which renders unalterable the core teachings of the church and gives a stable meaning to the philosophical terms like substance and nature and person and relation and, and all of these terms which the church uses. Um, uh, it, it renders them permanently comprehensible and fixed in their meaning so that there can't be an attempt to unscrew the perennial philosophy and plug in, uh, you know, Hegel or whoever it might be be uh, and get something else out the other side. Now, uh, immediately after he issues this document, Doctoris Angelici, a, a load of petitions come into Rome saying, but Holy Father, what do you mean by the fundamental principles in the philosophy of St. Thomas? And uh, Pius X uh, replies, well, funny you should ask that because I have a little list here that, that I have. Um, and in fact, this is all a setup. He'd written the list together with a pal of his back in 1910 or something, and they always wanted to get these these theses out there because they 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 bludgeoned to death all the other rival scholastic schools whose whose feuds have been causing all these difficulties over the century, and they basically squish them and 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 and, and confirm all the Thomistic positions. And so, just a month before he dies, I think it is just a month before he dies, he issues uh, this document, Postquam Sanctissimus, uh, containing the twenty-four Thomistic theses, which are like kryptonite to Scotists and Suarezians. They get very upset about them, um, and uh, and they. Um, and, and the fact this is the only document cite of Pius X cited in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, surprisingly enough, is Postquam Sanctissimus. And, um, uh, and this is supposed to be the final iron cladding on the anti-modernist dreadnought that, uh, that, that Pius X is putting together in order to steer the church through these, uh, these terrible seas that he sees opening before her. But then... Um, then just as the World War One is breaking out, about which Pius X is extremely depressed, because he can see that this will wreck the last elements of, of, of the residues of Christendom, the last Catholic regimes will fall, as they do, Pius X dies. And he's succeeded by uh, Pope Benedict the uh, 15th, 
Pope Benedict XV uh, is of the party that thinks that Pius X was a little bit mental. I mean, I mean, he doesn't think he was mental, but I mean, he thinks he thinks that this is a bit extreme. Some of this stuff, you know, having people snooping on everyone in all the dioceses and and all this kind of stuff. So he he starts to tone things down a little bit um, because I mean, unless you somehow had the kind of special prophetic insight that Pius X had, it would be difficult to believe that the measures that he undertook were really necessary in the extremity in which he imposed them. Uh, so, so it's not unreasonable that Pius the, that Benedict XV tones things down a bit. He comes under a lot of pressure, particularly from the Jesuits, about the twenty-four theses, um, and he issues a sort of wobbly statement, a letter to the to the general, the Jesuits, saying that they are safe directive norms, uh, but they don't demand internal assent. Um, uh, and um, and the dust and watch committees disappear, and and uh, various volunteer volunteers who'd signed up to snoop on naughty clerics uh, are also got rid of. Um, and uh, so so there's a, there's a toning down, but the anti-modernist oath is still there. Um, and in 1917, Pius X's Code of Canon Law comes out, and uh, in the code. Uh, he has uh, is there's a, there's, a, there's a canon which says that the arguments, doctrine, and principles of Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, must be uh, must be the basis of the teaching of philosophy in all Catholic seminaries and universities, and the professors there are to hold them inviolate. Right. So, so although it may be that the, the 24 Thomistic theses are only safe directive norms um, between 1914 and 1917 or 1918 when the code comes into force, but it seems that they're rather more than just safe directive norms uh, once the code of canon law comes into force. And of course, even though the code of canon law itself is disciplinary, um, uh, by compelling people to hold to certain propositions, uh, it's exercising a teaching function in that regard. And uh, Benedict XV's successor, Pius Eleventh, he says um, uh, in his encyclical um, Studiorum Ducem about St. Thomas Aquinas, he refers to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to this canon and says that as a result of it, the principles of St. Thomas have been unreservedly sanctioned by the church. So, so in fact, Pius X kind of got his way in the end, but he got his way in a complicated way that took a while to unfold and probably made less impact than it might have done. Now, um, Pius XI uh, starts to think about the idea of um, summon, re, re-summoning Vatican I, and, uh, and, and he sort of talks about this with, uh, with the Curiel Cardinals, and, uh, and he's, he's, he's eyeing particularly the year 1925, because uh, that's the uh, anniversary of the first Council of Nicaea, and that might seem to be a nice point on which to uh, to resume uh, the 20th Ecumenical Council. And um, but in the end, uh, it's decided that it's it's too dangerous, too much hassle. Basically, um, the uh, the problem is. Um, that they still don't have a, a, sov- a recognized sovereignty over any territory in Rome or Italy, and, and it's just going to be too difficult. Um, but he does issue um, uh, the great encyclical uh, Quas Primas, which uh, under the title The Kingship of Christ reasserts and establishes the Feast of Christ the King 
as a sort of feast of that great vision, liturgical feast of that great vision of Christian society, which Leo XIII had laid out in his 10 great encyclicals on the subject during his pontificate. So with, with Studium Ducem and Quas Primas, the two prongs of the Leonine strategy, uh, which is the, the restoration of Christendom from, from scratch, according to the original plans, um, and uh, the use of um, heroic and uh, triumphant scholasticism to do it uh, have been very much reasserted under Pius XI. Um, however, a difficulty arises in France, which is that um, uh, all the way back in Leo XIII's reign, uh, a problem had occurred, which is that the royalists have been bleeding support for some time. They lost control of the French legislature. The uh, the Republicans and the, particularly the anti-clerical Masonic Republicans took control, as we've been discussing. But uh, more and more Catholics weren't particularly that excited about restoring the monarchy. But there remained a large chunk of them who were very committed to, to restoring the monarchy. And one of the results of this was that the, the those forces which were benignly disposed towards the church were divided into the political monarchists um, and the, those who were just pro-Catholic, uh, but were not monarchists. And those two factions had sort of been united under Napoleon III's empire, which was sort of compromised, you know, it's kind of monarchy, but it was a sort of dodgy made up recent Republican monarchy, but, but it, and, and not everybody there was happy with it. And lots of them secretly really wanted the restoration of, of, of the Bourbons in one form or another. Um, but it, it provided enough of an umbrella for the church to be quite powerful and quite well protected and to prosper under Napoleon III's second empire. But instead, under the Third Republic, they're all bitterly divided. Um, and as a result, their, their political strength is completely neutralized. And that's why the baddies are able to completely dominate the French Republic. And um, so Leo XIII gets very frustrated about this. And it leads him to a policy known as the rallying or the rayamore in which he says to French Catholics, look, chaps, Romans chapter 13, powers that be are ordained of God, whether you like it or not, the French constitution is now a republic. Um, and you are obliged by the teaching of St. Paul, of our Lord Jesus Christ himself and of the church to submit to the to the to those those authorities as they exist. And so you cannot allow your preferences as regard to one constitutional form or another, whether it be the and the Napoleonic Empire or the or the Bourbons of one sort or another, or if you prefer a republic, you can't allow those divisions, which are not questions of moral right and wrong, don't touch directly on divine or natural law, to get in the way of uniting your political forces, getting control of the levers of government and stopping these horrible attacks on the church. And um, so he tells them to shut up and accept the Republic. He says that it's not, um, it's, not, uh, it's not really appropriate to have a constitution which can't be changed uh, to a different form of government, but that's not really uh, a major problem for Catholics. The major problem for Catholics is questions of conforming the civil order to the gospel, regardless of what form the civil order takes institutionally. And in fact, the uh, the Republicans in charge of the French state have been very clever and they've altered the constitution to say that the constitution can't be altered in any way that would cause it to cease to be a republic, which forces the um, uh, royalists into a sort of uh, unconstitutional um, quasi-revolutionary position, right, which is a very clever little trick to play on them. Um, but the this rallying of Leo Thirteenth is super duper controversial. Um, it, the royalists are not happy about it. 
they basically don't go along with it and it doesn't work in France. Um, but it is a key part of the overall philosophy of Leo XIII that uh, we, we, we pair things back to the essentials and, uh, and we try and build Christendom from first principles, not as a kind of um, uh, revive, nostalgist revival of, of the fallen regimes that preceded 1789. Um, but as I say, it caused a lot of bitterness. Now, in the, in the course of this, there arises this uh, this monarchist political movement in France called Action Française, and uh, and this is a very mysterious royalist movement which um, wants to which is led intellectually by a chap called Charles Morat, who is an agnostic or an atheist and is basically what what's called an integral nationalist. He's not actually. He thinks that, that that the monarchy should be restored and that Catholicism should be official state religion in France, but he doesn't think that because he thinks Catholicism is true. He thinks that because he thinks that uh, in order to have a conservative, um, uh, authoritarian civil order, you need to have um, uh, you need to have a, a sort of national myth that binds everybody together and gives them a sense of of, of, of oneness. And, uh, and for France, that means Catholicism. And therefore, he wants this kind of, uh, this confessional royalist state, but based on a, um, based on a, a secular um, agnostic philosophy. But it's the most uh, apparently successful monarchist movement in town, despite the fact that it is, uh, it really does not bear at all any scrutiny from the point of view of Catholic theology. Um, and um, during his pontificate, Pius X has a sort of, sort of confidential report done into it, and they conclude, you know, that this is really quite bad and, and, and probably ought to be condemned. But Pius X decides that we can't really condemn it because the church in France, in the wake of the law of separation of 1905, which, which refuses to recognize the church at all and, and seizes control of all church property in the entire country, I mean, it's a pretty extreme law, is in such a difficult situation that these people who, for whatever questionable reasons, are in favor of the church, uh, we can't afford to be condemning them at this point. So uh, one of the consequences of this is that Action Francaise grows bigger and bigger and bigger and is influencing more and more and more young Catholics um, until uh, in uh, 1926, Pius XI decides that it's just got completely out of control and that it's really dangerous. Uh, and he, he calls it social and political modernism, and he condemns this movement, um, to which a lot of the great figures of the Thomist revival, which is happening at the time, uh, are adherents. Um, uh, Garagou Lagrange and Jacques Maritain, most famously, are both associated to one degree or another with Action Francaise. And, um, uh, and the following year, he puts the magazine itself on the, I think it's the only newspaper, it's called Action Francaise, only newspaper ever to be put on the index of forbidden books. And uh, the following year, the, uh, the members of Action Francaise are prohibited from receiving the sacraments. And um, Maritain is a bit bewildered. Maritain's sort of rock star of Thomism at the time, you know, the one that everyone's, everyone's reading all of his books and he's the kind of exciting rock and roll Elvis of Thomism. And, uh, and, the, and, uh, and, and Pius XI summons Maritain to Rome and says, Oi, Maritain. Um, so Maritain's a layman. Uh, and he, he, he's a very engaging uh, style and he's a str strident uh, exponent of, of St. Thomas's doctrines. And, 
and him and Garrigou Lagrange, who's a, who's a Dominican from an old royalist family, uh, who gives who's very much uh, straight down the line by the book, uh, gives a presentation of the of the of the Thomist school and all of its traditional interpretations of Saint Thomas, and so the two of them make this rather impressive double act, and uh, they even have these kind of. Thomas study circles made up of people who become Benedictine oblates and then then gather in their different geographical locations to study St. Thomas and that's having a big impact as well and so this um uh, and so the condemnation of Action Francaise really throws the kind of cat among the pigeons in regard to this 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 renaissance of of, uh, of political Catholicism. And uh, Maritain is summoned to Rome, and uh, Pius XI tells him that you are jolly well going to a accept my condemnation and then write stuff defending the condemnation. So Maritain agrees to do this, and he goes off and he writes this very strange book called um, The Primacy of the Spiritual, published in 1927. Uh, which is then elaborated into a into a um, a, a more programmatic um, sort of ideological manifesto called Integral Humanism, which he publishes in 1936. And uh, the odd thing about this is that what Pius XI objected to about Action Francaise was the idea that you could undertake coherent and morally acceptable political action by pretending that Catholicism is true. And, uh, and and that would provide a kind of umbrella in which non-believers and belie- non-believers of conservative temperament and believers uh, could act together um, and achieve positive goals towards the restoration of a society that would be acceptable to both. Um, and uh, he he was basically saying, well, no, that this isn't true. You you have to the first principle in moral action is the final end. Uh, that which is which is the uh, the the vision of God as obtained through Christ crucified. And so you cannot come up with coherent and, and, and sound uh, actions without uh, full-throatedly embracing uh, the Catholic faith. So weirdly, what Maritain does is he abandons royalism, which he wasn't required to do. He was just abandoned, he was just required to abandon the philosophy of Charles Morat. Um, and uh, and decides to go for a secular uh, political order. This is much more clearly laid out in um, in uh, uh, integral humanism in 1936. Um, a secular political order in which um, Catholics will agree with non-believers who are overtly secular instead of pretend Catholics like uh, Maurizian um, agnostics. Um, about uh, fundamental principles of the natural law relating to the dignity of human beings and 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 the invi- and the inviolability of that dignity and their participation in the in the temporal order because of the fact that we recognise that man is a social and political animal and that every man is my neighbour, and Maritain even holds he has a complicated and, and rather good I think a moral philosophy in which he. He, he holds that these truths that every man is my neighbor and, and that uh, it is desirable for, for as many people as possible to participate in the civil order are actually not defensible by natural reason alone, but arise from divine revelation. He calls it, his, his theory is called moral philosophy, adequately considered. Um, but instead of concluding from that, that you can't really have a fully legitimate political order that won't turn into a nightmare without them embracing the truth of Catholicism, he concludes that so long as you embrace these conclusions, we can disagree about the premises and not put the premises in place, a sort of anonymous Christendom. And uh, so this is 
this is very damaging as a theory and it's it really under under the banner of defending Pius XI's condemnation of Action Francaise takes an axe to Pius XI's doctrine in Quas Primas, the great encyclical of 1925 on the kingship of Christ. Now, uh, but things are getting, by the time um, uh, it causes eventually Garrigou Lagrange and uh, Maritain to fall out quite badly and, and the movement which they had been co-sponsoring peters out as a result. And they fall out very strongly over the Spanish Civil War because um, Garrigou is, is perfectly happy to support Franco um, and uh, thinks that the others are evil commies who are murdering priests and burning down churches. Um, and uh, whereas Maritain is, um, is, is, sees Franco as an integral nationalist like Action Francaise and, and he couldn't really support him without undermining his new philosophy of integral humanism. So, they, so he's, he's on the other side of the Spanish Civil War and, and, and really that finishes off the uh, Garrigou-Lagrange-Maritain double act. Um, now, at the same time as all this is going on, um, uh, the popes have concluded a deal with Mussolini. So like a lot of sort of dictatory types, he wants to uh, neutralize the church as a potential source of opposition to him. And so he's willing to make a number of major concessions. And so he, uh, he agrees to endow um, uh, the Holy See by treaty or recognized by treaty that the, the Leonine city is a sovereign territory, that the Pope is a sovereign in international law, you know, compensation is arranged for the losses uh, through the unification of Italy. And so the Pope, the, the Roman question, which has prevented participation in Italian politics and has poisoned relations between the Italian state and uh, the Holy See, is finally settled by the Lateran Pact of 1929. However, there's no real prospect of participation in Italian politics at this point because it's now a dictatorship run by Mussolini. Um, and uh, as the 1930s go on, uh, things get worse uh, with, uh, you know, obviously the, uh, the uh, dictatorship of Adolf Hitler arising in Germany. And, um, and in a, a very controversial move, Pius XI, uh, tries to do something similar, he tries to defend the church from future attack in Germany by uh, getting the Zentrum not to oppose at the crucial moment Hitler's takeover of power in exchange for a concordat being signed between Germany and the Holy See to defend the independence of the Holy See and of the Catholic Church in Germany. But Hitler just, as is his wont, pockets uh, the um, the concessions and the failure of, of the uh, Catholic laity to resist him in the Reichstag at the moment when they might have been able to, uh, and immediately starts trampling on all the rights which have supposedly been agreed through the Concordat with Germany. So, so the prospect of ever re-summoning Vatican I uh, is receding rapidly. In, in over the course of Pius XI's reign it isn't going to happen. But it's interesting that, um, uh, of course, Our Lady of Fatima in 1917, uh, she says that uh, she's going to come back, she tells the Fatima visionaries that she's going to come back and um, ask for the whole church, sorry, of Russia to be consecrated to the Immaculate Heart uh, by the Pope in communion with all the bishops of the church. And uh, she does actually appear to Sister Lucia in 1929, the same year as the Holy See's sovereignty is, is restored in international law, to say that the time has now come for this to occur. So it may well be that um, 
our lady was indicating that um, now that the Roman question has been resolved, uh, Vatican I could be reassembled and the consecration to Russia by the Pope and all the bishops in communion with him, assembled in ecumenical council in this case, uh, could be achieved. Um, but it, that is not attempted. There's no attempt to, to reconvene Vatican I. Obviously, the skies darken over the course of the 1920s. And um, uh, um, as that goes on, a new, uh, a new underground movement, a revival, uh, as Gary Lagrange would claim after the war, essentially a revival of modernism begins to uh, re reappear in the church. And um, uh, one of the key figures in this is uh, so one of the one of the modernists who was condemned in 1907 originally was a, a, a Jesuit uh, in a British Jesuit called Tyrrell, um, as, along with a, a French uh, French scholar called Loisy. Um, Loisy is particularly interesting in that he eventually admits that he hadn't believed in God for years, um, uh, although he hadn't admitted it to himself at the time. So, but. Um, uh, Tyrrell is there. There are there are interesting connections, overlaps between Tyrrell and uh, the uh, his fellow Jesuit Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, uh, who um, is attempting a synthesis uh, of precisely the type that Vatican I was excluding, of uh, evolution and uh, and what supposedly is supposed to be Catholic doctrine. Um, uh, and he's involved in the Piltdown Man hoax when they supposedly discover the living, the missing link between apes and men somewhere in England. Um, and uh, yeah, subsequently shown to have been fraudulent. Um, and uh, and this overlap between him and the, uh, the younger Jesuit, uh, Henry de Lubac. And um, over the now, over the course of uh, the Second World War, this this new evolutionary neo-modernism begins to rise to the surface again, right? After the initial blow that it received from the vicious persecution of uh, Pius X. Now, uh, the funny thing about the interwar period uh, is that it's actually a, a really good period for the church because um, uh, especially, well, in outside of the United States, liberal capitalism isn't looking that great after World War One. In the United States in the 1920s, it's looking really good. Um, but after the Wall Street crash, obviously, it's not looking very good in the United States either. And uh, and the big um, the big uh, alternatives which are knocking around are terrifying totalitarian systems like Mussolini's fascism, uh, Hitler's national socialism, and Stalin's uh, communism. Um, and so the fact that the Catholic Church proposes an integrated, uh, comprehensive system of thought and belief and practice at every level, from politics all the way down to the family and the individual, uh, is not surprising or anomalous as it, it can be made to look within the context of liberal capitalism, which pretends to be neutral in regard to ultimate questions, whereas it isn't at all neutral in regard to ultimate questions. It's a sort of nihilistic hedonism, uh, essentially preaches, but the, but, um, 
but uh, the um, but these these big monster totalitarian doctrines uh, are, are seem to be the other games in town, and they seem to be very unpleasant. So the Catholic Church is looking pretty good in comparison with them, and um, there's there's lots of conversions. France is sort of intellectual and spiritual centre of this great revival, but there's lots of conversions all over the place in the English speaking world as well. One of the one of the famous converts of the period, uh, Evelyn Waugh, the novelist. Um, in the novel, he later writes about uh, the Second World War, the hero at the beginning of World War II, when Britain is sort of isolated and um, uh, and uh, is up against the Soviet Union and the and Nazi Germany simultaneously because they're allied in the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Uh, he's sort of euphoric, the hero of this book. He's from an old English recusant family um, because it's it, he, he's, he, he volunteers to fight in the British army because it's like wonderful for a Catholic to be able to, you know, take arms against 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 the modern world united and in arms against him. So so it's, it's it seems like, you know, so the atmosphere for Catholicism is, is really good at this point. The problem is that uh, this um, uh, that this neo-modernist um, movement is is developing under the surface, and um, uh, with the end of the Second World War, um, the uh, there's only two games left in town now. One of them is the West united around the United States of America, ultimately in the NATO treaty, and um, and the other is the Soviet Union and all of its conquered client slave states. Um, united around Stalin and his successors, and so uh, so the Enlightenment liberalism uh, of the of the um, of the U.S. founding fathers becomes uh, becomes the obvious alternative to uh, communism in a in a kind of two sided battle. Now, initially, that looks really good because um, because the uh, because the the Catholic Church suddenly becomes ultra respectable in the United States, from being the not quite with the American program grubby religion of Italians and Irishmen, um, looked down on by the WASP elite, it suddenly becomes the global bulwark against the Red Peril, and uh, and all the bishops are suddenly you know welcome at all the top dinner parties, and uh, are suddenly respectable and and of course the Catholic Church is growing at an incredible rate. It doubles or trebles in the United States just in the pontificate of Pius XII. Um, and so it's looking as if things are going extremely well. And um, uh, But the, this creates a renewed temptation of Americanism in the US, um, a temptation to, to soften and play down those elements of the Catholic faith which are particularly offensive and unacceptable to the traditional elites in the United States. Um, and it leads to a great conflict between two American theologians over the course of the 1950s, uh, Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton, who is a great defender of the doctrine, which um, and who is the most prestigious theologian in the U.S. in that period, uh, who's a great defender of the doctrines laid out by Leo XIII in Longinqua back in the 19th century, which praised the U.S. Constitution but see it as in its religious neutrality as a provisional arrangement versus um, John Courtney Murray, who uh, who wants to try and persuade his fellow Catholics to adopt a classical liberal doctrine of a state which is simply incompetent to uh, determine or enter into religious questions um, as somehow now acceptable to the Catholic Church, which is very difficult to explain how that could possibly be given the huge weight of teaching, including the infallible encyclical of um, 
Pius IX on the subject, Quanta Cura. Anyway, so so Fenton has the better of this battle during the 1950s, um, and uh, and uh, Murray is is on the back foot now. Meanwhile, but but uh, but but it isn't he. He doesn't have a definitive knockout victory, as will emerge. Um, meanwhile, back in Europe, um, uh, Henry de Lubac has published uh, this book called Sur Naturel in 1946, and in this book he argues that because men are rational animals and by nature they desire to know um, and the highest form of knowledge is knowledge of something and its causes and therefore the highest form of knowledge of all is the knowledge of the cause of all causes in his essence that is the beatific vision therefore men have a natural appetite for the beatific vision um, and uh, and that there isn't an independent natural order of nature and reason uh, upon which grace is established uh, but that the two are intrinsically bound together um, by the very nature of things and uh, this provokes a violent reaction from Garrigou Lagrange uh, it becomes known as the Nouvelle Theologie the new theology and Garrigou Lagrange accuses it of being a revival of modernism and um Pius XII seems to be amenable to this uh, to this view of things, and uh, and he starts to put together an encyclical to deal with this question, as well as with problems arising from uh, chaps like Teilhard de Chardin, who is big pals with de Lubac, and de Lubac's a great admirer of his. Um, and uh, this encyclical is is issued in 1950, uh, Humani Generis. And um, it condemns those who say that God cannot create an intellectual creature without ordering and directing him to uh, the supernatural end, the beatific vision. Um, now, de Lubac manages to avoid being condemned by name because he issues another uh, an article uh, shortly before the encyclical comes out in which he kicks up a bit of dust around, uh, around his claims in the earlier book and mitigates them slightly. And so a sort of compromise gets worked out between Pius XII's Curia and the Jesuits, that if de Lubac's books are withdrawn from Jesuit libraries and courses, and de Lubac himself makes himself scarce, then, um, then they won't condemn him by name, they'll only condemn uh, the doctrine which they find offensive and which they attribute, which the Pope attributes to um, a surnatural, but without attributing it to him or to that book explicitly. And um, so essentially, Humani Generis is an attempt to um, uh, to restore once again uh, the um, the measures which were introduced to uh, fight against modernism the first time round in 1907. But it is done with considerably less vigor and ruthlessness than Pius X did. So it creates only a small breathing space. Um, uh, rather than you know decades of uh, of uh, retreat and and um, and regrouping by the modernists as uh, Pershendi had. Now at the same time in the in the immediate post war period, um, before the full horror of what it means to live in Stalin's Eastern Bloc has become clear to everybody in the West, um, there is danger of, uh, of of people turning to communism in Western Europe, which is very poor in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And the, the part of Western Europe where this danger is greatest is Italy. And there are a number of elections where things get very, very uh, close and tense and people are very worried about um about whether or not the communists are getting to power in the end they don't uh 
and in fact uh, major Catholic political parties get into power in France, Italy and Germany and they start to create the European Union in starting in the year 1950, not then called the European Union, but it's called the European Coal and Steel Community, but after various evolutionary jumps it ends up as the European Union later on in the 20th century. And at this time, as even the British government's internal memos recognise, it's very much seen as a sort of Catholic plot um, uh, of, of, of Catholics who see that they've, they've, they've uh, the, the terrible situation that Leo XIII inherited has now been definitively reversed and Catholics are in power across Western Europe and they're attempting to consolidate that by associating the Western European states in the anti-communist crusade and uh, and and uniting them with each other in this supranational structure of what's called the communitarian Europe. So uh, around 1950, uh, with the communist menace apparently having been defeated in Italy, the idea of, and it got sufficiently bad that the Irish government in the 1940s at one point suggested that the Pope might want to move to move the papacy to it to uh, to Ireland, um, <coughs> but. Um, Pius XII stuck it out. And uh, so then this causes the revival of discussions about the possibility of reconvening um, this, the First Vatican Council. And, uh, and, and once again, there's a lot of support for it. And there's an interesting list of topics which they were considering dealing with. And it's possible that um, had, it, had uh, Vatican I been reconvened or a new council summoned, in 1950, that it might have uh, it might have stuck with the Leonine program, um, and so as it were, canonized it and dealt with some of the things which were which which were raised in Humani Generis. But this never actually happens. Um, uh, it's it's decided in the end that, and they were thinking of possibly defining the assumption at this potentially reconvened First Vatican Council, but in the end uh, they decide that it's just too risky. And that um, that probably the the apparently very obedient bishops of the church under Pius the Twelfth. Uh, faithfully swearing the oath against modernism at various points in their clerical career might not be quite so um, docile and um, loyal to that oath as it appears on the surface and that uh, this might emerge uh, once the um, once all the safety mechanisms were switched off and uh, the ecumenical council were reconvened um, and so again Pius XII, like his predecessor Pius XI, decides again in 1929, decides against summoning an ecumenical council or reconvening Vatican I. And again, there are signs uh, that Our Lady of Fatima uh, doesn't entirely agree with this decision. So just like in 1929, um, uh, there was the apparition to Lucia to say the time has come for the consecration to Russia. So immediately after the... Um, solemn definition of the assumption, Pius Twelfth actually on, on successive days experiences the miracle of the sun in the Vatican Gardens while he's walking around the Vatican Gardens. So Our, our Lady is clearly, you know, uh, trying to sort of get some kind of message across here, but, uh, but it doesn't seem, to, <laughs> doesn't seem to fully catch. Now, now another problem, a sign that things are, are difficulties that are going to arise, comes with this uh, another Jesuit at uh, Harvard, this chap Leonard Feeney, who um, who uh, 
along with uh, Avery Dulles, in fact, who subsequently becomes Cardinal Dulles, um, uh, um, is involved in the early years of the St. Benedict Center, which is a center um, uh, next to Harvard University, and uh, which he's a very charismatic preacher, apparently, and he makes lots of conversions among the children of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite in the United States. And so that's all looking, you know, quite good, um, uh, but it's um, but it, it's putting a lot of noses out of joint, and it's uh, annoying their parents, and it's reducing the social acceptability of the newly popular Catholic bishops, whose uh, whose um, whose invitations to the top parties are becoming, you know, less enthusiastic and less frequent, and uh, so the Catholic bishops in the U.S. start to notice that this is becoming a bit of a problem, and um, and they they start to get annoyed with Father Feeney. And um, Father Feeney is preaching a, a, a very um, uh, hardline version of the doctrine that outside the church there is no salvation. Specifically, he holds that the kind of um, desire to be within the church, which might be uh, compatible with justification um, uh, for someone who isn't formally a member of the church, uh, couldn't really be implicit it would have to be explicit, right? And uh, and then later on in the early fifties, he uh, he he teaches the doctrine that um, that there is that no one will be predestined to salvation who doesn't receive the sacrament of water baptism. Uh, now um, these are these are tricky doctrines because. Um, it's not clear that there's any that they've been condemned anywhere basically and there's a lot of fathers who say things that sound an awful lot like them um and so it's not easy to um certainly they're not the position of saint thomas so uh so the position that um that, that you you're not you can't be predestined unless you have water baptism is not the position of saint thomas so and uh, Father Feeney's followers uh, ultimately hold that that position is a, a theological opinion, not a um, not a, a dogma, uh, and they don't claim that people who hold to the possibility of being saved, uh, with the actuality, to put it more precisely, of being saved of baptism desire, are heretics, um, but they do hold that they're wrong, and that they hold that they are almost entirely opposed by the patristic witness with a few exceptions which the Feeneyites think are really kind of exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, anyway, uh, Feeney is by by, by by preaching these doctrines which um, uh, as it were sharpen the urgency of the uh, appeal to conversion of the uh, people who are being received into the church at the St. Benedict Center, um, he is nevertheless annoying um, the American hierarchy and, and damaging the post-war anti-communist consensus in which the church is finding herself suddenly so very comfortable. And uh, so initially, in response to the first of these positions, the reaction is a letter sent by the Holy Office to the Archbishop of Boston, um, which contradicts that position. Um, however, the letter is, is shrouded in strange ambiguity. The letter is very clear. Um, uh, it, it, I'm sure it represents the view of Garrigou Lagrange and the view of, of Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton and of Cardinal Taviani. So it's not a it's not a, a, a super duper liberal position at all. But it is it, it it's not compatible with the first of those two positions of Feeney, and it's never placed in the Acts of the Apostolic See. 
and in fact, later in the fifties, um, uh, Karl Rahner, dun, 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 who's going to be one of the uh, one of the uh, horsemen of the Nouvelle Theologie, he ends up um, as the editor of um, uh, Denzinger, and he's really keen to get this letter into Denzinger to make it definitive and exclude um, uh, the position of Feeney uh, from uh, acceptable consideration in Catholic theology, um, because that will, as it were, change the center of gravity towards his, in fact, radically um, uh, implicitist position where, whereby you can be saved while being a fanatical atheist just because deep down you're a good guy. Uh, I, I know no doubt I'm caricaturing the position, but not that much. Um, and uh, so he's very keen to get this document of the Holy Office into Denzinger. The problem is that there's no official Latin text of the document. So I don't know whether or not um, Rana got hold of some earlier draft that was written in Latin, because the actual letter as published and sent to the Bishop of Archbishop of Boston was in English. So I don't know whether Rana got hold of the some kind of Latin draft or whether or not he translated it into Latin himself. Um, but he he sort of magically from nowhere obtains a Latin text which has no um, official trail to explain its existence and he inserts it into uh, Denzinger so because otherwise if you just put the original English text it would look screamingly obviously unofficial because there would just be a blank column where the Latin text ought to be so he puts in this mysterious unexplained Latin text next to the English text and then the English text has a little footnote and the footnote is to I think it's called the American Ecclesiastical Review it's the journal of, um, of Monsignor Joseph Clifford Fenton it's not an official ecclesiastical um, uh, organ at all. It's just a, a theological journal. And he just has it in abbreviated form in the footnotes. And if, it's still there in, the, in, in, in all subsequent editions of Denzinger. So if you go there, you'll find it. Um, you'll find this little abbreviation. You'll think, what's that? And you'll notice there's no footnote for the Latin. And you go to the list of abbreviations at the front, and there it is. Uh, is this journal, American theological journal, is the source, apparently, for this text. And there's no... Um, uh, yeah, and it's the only, that abbreviation exists only for that text. It's never, nothing is ever else cited from that source elsewhere in uh, in Denzinger. Um, so uh, eventually in the early 50s, um, Feeney is summoned to Rome um, uh, and Feeney says, um, well, you know, why am I being summoned to Rome? And uh, And Rome says, shut up and come to Rome. And he says, well, but am I being accused of heresy? Because if I'm being accused of heresy, I'd like to know so I can prepare my defence. And if I'm not being accused of heresy, I, that would be nice to know too, because it's a bit scary to be accused of heresy. So I think I have a right in natural justice to be told either whether, that whether I am or not being accused of heresy, and if I am, what the charges are so I can prepare my defence. And, and Rome says, shut up and come to Rome. And, uh, and he says, well, this is contrary to natural justice, so I'm not doing it. And they say, right, then you're excommunicated for disobedience which is probably a bit of a relief on their part because the US bishops are keen for this guy to be shut up and uh, but I expect the chaps in Rome probably are, are looking at the various patristic citations and wondering whether or not they can reasonably condemn his position um, uh, so 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 instead he gets excommunicated for um, for disobedience right so now then into this situation so we've got de Lubac um, is agreed to be quiet um, Teilhard de Chardin um, uh, is very popular, not really entirely approved of, but you know he's um, he's uh, um, 
but he's uh, he's not been formally condemned. There is finally a warning concerning the nature of his writings after his death under Pope John the Twenty Third, but at this point he hasn't been formally condemned. Um, uh, Feeney has been condemned, but not for theological reasons in weird circumstances. Um, uh, the letter telling him off has appeared in these mysterious circumstances in Denzinger, and um, uh, and meanwhile uh, Montini. Um, uh, who is uh, later to be Paul VI. Um, he, uh, who is a, is a great um, lieutenant of um, uh, Pius XII, he, uh, way back, short, not long after it came out, translated Jacques Maritain's integral humanism uh, into Italian. He's that enthusiastic about it. So this integral humanism, which would ultimately dissolve the doctrine of the kingship of Christ, um, is, 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 is in this sort of semi-respectable position as well. And there's a big drive to try and get it condemned from various people immediately after the war and in the early 50s but it it, it fails because Charles de Gaulle um, the leader of the free French appoints Jacques Maritain as the French ambassador to the Holy See diplomatic relations having been re-established with the Holy See where they'd been severed at the time of the law of separation in 1905 and so uh, it would be uh, cause a huge international incident to condemn something written by this uh, famous Catholic philosopher who was now serving as the French ambassador to the Holy See. So Maritain manages to avoid um, uh, any anything being said about this book, Integral Humanism, and manages to carry on pushing his philosophy. Um, and uh, as I say, the Catholic Church is massively increasing in size. The United States has an enormously important position. And so it looks as if um, more and more under the surface, the sentiment that the that the, um, the the chaps chaps like de Lubac and a Dominican called uh, Marie Dominique Chenou, um, and uh, and the admirers of Teilhard de Chardin, among whom de Lubac is numbered, and Hansus von Balthasar, who writes uh, this book called Raising the Bastions, uh, essentially complaining about the intransigence of the Leonine project of ruthless scholasticism. Um, uh, all these forces are building up under the surface uh, in the 1950s, and, um, and uh, and it's looking as if the doctrine of the social kingship of Christ is a serious drag on the on the success of the church in the United States. Now, um, at the same time, um, uh, there are starting to be signs of some problems uh, in the US. Uh, the lapsation rate is higher than it should be. And um, with the end of the Second World War, a uh, great increase in prosperity, um, and a suburbanization of, of Catholics in the United States. They're both becoming more middle class and they're moving out to the suburbs. Um, and uh, the result of all this is that, <laughs> the result of all this is that, um, is that Catholics are very scattered and uh, and the um, uh, the degree to which they're holding on to the faith is still extremely high, right? We're still talking about um, uh, more than 75% of Catholics, cradle Catholics are surviving as Catholics to the end of their lives, uh, still identifying as Catholics, and there's a good practice rate, but it's not as high as it was, and it's beginning to concern the bishops. Um, and there's, there's a, and, and this is happening uh, also in, in Britain, um, uh, uh, in some ways in an even more extreme way, because um, the, uh, because uh, the, 
various local authorities in Britain are, are demolishing the old Catholic areas of British towns which have suffered bombing and during the war and are in a dilapidated state and they scatter the Catholics out into um, into new housing estates which are often horrendous places um, uh, and so break up the very tight-knit uh, Catholic areas that existed beforehand so that's happening in a spontaneous way for economic reasons in the US and in a more kind of centralized uh, planning way um, in the UK so but in fact it's it if we had levels of lapsation and practice and vocations that they had at this period now, we would be very, 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 very happy indeed. Um, but in comparison to what had occurred just beforehand, uh, the, the, they're beginning to get concerned that there are signs of possible wobble, right? And together with this is this revival of the idea that the kingship of Christ doctrine is a drag on the church and a revival of the idea that scholasticism is is um is holding back a full-hearted embracing of uh, more evolutionary ideas both in terms of um of doctrine and in terms of of method in theology and uh final element uh in all this is is the uh beginnings of liturgical innovations so we already saw that in in under pius x um there was a uh there was a, um, a complete rewrite of the Roman breviary, uh, which would, would have been seen as highly shocking prior to Vatican I. And, uh, and this has now extended into beginnings of experimentations with the mass and uh, priests sort of quietly starting in certain places to say mass facing the people and some bogus and now discredited archaeology suggesting that uh, that was how mass was said in the early church is appearing. Um, uh, in 1951, I think it is, um, uh, this uh, liturgist who's going to become a very important figure, Annabel Bunini, um, uh, Father Annabel Bunini, who he begins to exercise a greater, greater influence in the Roman Curia, and he influences uh, a... Um, a reform of the uh, of the Easter Vigil, uh, which is then uh, becomes much more extensive in 1955. Also, Pius XII uh, decides is persuaded that the old Psalter of of, of the uh, of the Roman Rite, which goes all the way back to the Vetus Latina prior to the uh, to the Vulgate of Saint Jerome. Um, and St. Jerome was unable to budget and was only able to tweak a few bits of it because of the opposition and the traditional attachment to it. It's finally apparently um, uh, dislodged under Pius XII. He produced this new classicizing Psalter, uh, which again is a very dramatic innovation. As I say, this is something which not even Pope Damasus and St. Jerome were able to achieve um, an innovation of this kind in the fourth century. Um, in fact, it fails um, because the monks of the world are furious and basically refuse to cooperate. And in the end, Pius XII has to make his new Psalter purely, purely voluntary. Um, uh, and so it's sort of fallen down the memory hole and disappeared almost entirely to history. Um, but anyway, there we are. There are all the different forces arrayed. Um, and uh, finally, Pius XII dies in 1958. And uh, um, Cardinal Roncalli is elected Pope as Pope John XXIII. Now, um, John the 23rd was very old when he was elected Pope. 
And uh, it was widely whispered, and it looks like John XXIII overheard some of the whispers that um, uh, that he was, uh, he basically, you know, the, the famous aphorism that young cardinals elect old popes, that, um, the, that John XXIII's function was to keep the, the See of St. Peter warm for a more ambitious younger man who would come along when he had a few more respectable looking gray hairs in two years time or so, and he would take over as Pope. And uh, John XXIII seemed to resent this rather. And uh, now John XXIII was a very friendly sort of chap. And, uh, and he, um, he's, in some ways, he seems to have uh, had some character overlap with uh, Pius IX in his early years. And, um, and, he, uh, and, and I don't think he liked the idea of, of being seen as a caretaker pope. And he also, um, he didn't like offending people and he wasn't a sort of naturally intransigent person, although he was in fact really quite conservative. And this is greatly underestimated, but he, he had, um, he did a number of things like he took out the explicit reference to Islam being a form of paganism from the formula of consecration uh, to the uh, sacred heart. Um, that was read out on the Feast of Christ the King. And, um, and he modified the phraseology of the prayer for the conversion of, Jew of the Jews um, in the uh, Holy Week liturgies. And um, so there was a kind of good humouredness that uh, perhaps didn't take account of the potential scandalous theological misinterpretations that could arise from some of these measures. Um, and uh, there's a number of interesting figures at the time uh, who were involved in, in some of the big movements of the 1950s who knew him and were a little bit disconcerted by his willingness to make big gestures and not think them out entirely in advance. So, for example, um, uh, Robert Schuman, uh, the French foreign minister who founded the European Union, uh, who knew uh, Roncalli quite well because he was the nuncio to France while Schumann was French foreign minister, there's an, a, an amusing memo uh, left in his papers in the archive in Metz that I came across once uh, years ago. Um, and uh, and, and uh, uh, Roncalli had asked for permission to visit the North African colonies of France, which at the time were in a great turmoil and, and uh, were, we are, were apt to burst out into civil war. And Roncalli wanted to go, go around and look at them, and he wanted a special diplomatic visa in order to do that as the papal nuncio. And um, although Schumann liked uh, Roncalli and invited him to dinner at his home and all that kind of thing. Um, he, he has an internal confidential memo in which he says, don't grant him this visa. He's a lovely chap, but he tends to make grand gestures, which he hasn't thought out properly in advance and which have chaotic consequences. And so, so Roncalli is quietly denied this diplomatic visa. And at the other end of the 50s, after he's actually become Pope, um, uh, Etienne Gilson, another great Thomist philosopher, um, who was or actually served as a senator for Robert Schumann's party in uh, in France for one term. He went um, he went to see uh, John Twenty Third just after his election, and uh, John Twenty Third was in very good humour and being very chatty with with Gilson. There were various other people there as well. It was one of these sort of you know a small a small group private audience, and uh, and he starts just sort of um, talking, thinking out loud, and he says, yeah. I'm inclined in some ways to abolish clerical celibacy, you know, I mean, it's it's a bit of a drag, very difficult for the poor old chaps, but um, people have been through so much over the centuries to preserve it that it would seem a little bit unfair on them to get rid of it now, so we'll probably stick with it. And uh, and then he just moves on to another subject, and, and Gilson can't believe his ears, basically, he's thinking... 
you know, you know, I mean, uh, okay. Uh, but if you had an idea like that, surely you would just keep it to yourself because I mean, if it got out, it could cause real difficulties. He doesn't say that he's just thinking that he's writing that later on. And, um, uh, so the fact that, that John the Twenty Third is is a difficult and unpredictable, albeit friendly and warm-hearted fellow, uh, is some um, is is something which is uh, is going to be a very significant factor at the beginning of his pontificate. So according to his own account, um, in on on the twenty fifth of January, nineteen fifty nine, he announces his intention to summon an ecumenical council. And um, uh, in fact, a lot of the most conservative cardinals in the Curia are quite keen on the idea of an ecumenical council being summoned because they want to deal with some of the problems that were brought up uh, when the discussions about holding a council were held in the 1920s and at the end of the 1940s. Um, so there isn't uh, overwhelming opposition to it, but John XXIII says that he, he was talking to one of the cardinals and he announced the idea of doing it just because the idea came to him during the conversation. So again, it's it's um, uh, it's it's quite a quite a remarkable uh, remarkable moment in the history of the church, and and of course there's been lots of speculation. Pope Francis, in his sermon, uh, the canonization of of John the twenty third was was very emphatic about how John the twenty third was sort of you know the 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 docile instrument of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the third person in the Trinity had but to twitch a feather and John the 23rd would spring into action. And uh, whereas on the other end of the uh, on the other end of the spectrum, the famous um, traditionalist uh, uh, um, leader, um, uh, Michael Davies, uh, who was so admired by Benedict the 16th, uh, he thought that John the 23rd was a was a good and saintly man who however was misled by evil spirits into calling the Second Vatican Council. So so given his spontaneity of action, obviously that that uh, um, uh, it uh, lays open both extremes of interpretation there. Um, now, uh, so the question is why did he summon it so the so as it were the pope francis explanation is because the holy spirit told him to um the michael davis explanation is because because uh, some evil spirits told him to uh the the slightly uncharitable explanation is because um uh he was irritated that everyone thought he was going to be a, a caretaker pope keeping the seat warm and he thought right okay that's how it is i'm going to summon an ecumenical council see how you like that eh? um and uh, so that's the uh that's alternative number three. No doubt there are other possibilities. Um, and uh, But it is clear that he was sort of amused by the, the potential for disruption that the council could cause. And when things began to get um, a little bit frisky at the beginning of the council, he didn't really take any action to try and uh, pull them back on track. Um, in 1960, he, uh, he dissolved the first Vatican Council. Finally, he decided not to reconvene Vatican I, but to convene a new ecumenical council instead. So the formal dissolution of, of, of Vatican I occurred. He, he got together um, about 10 or so uh, commissions full of curial officials and theologians in Rome to prepare for the various topics that would need to be considered 
in Vatican II. And um, but there was uh, there are there are some other signs that despite the fact that he was a bit he was quite sanguine about the fact that the council took on an unexpected life of its own um, uh, early on in its in its uh, it, after it was convened uh, that that he did have really quite conservative intentions for the council because uh, one of the signs of this is the Roman Synod of January 1960. So he um, he summoned a local synod of the uh, province of Rome um, uh, to provide a model for the sort of renewal in the church that he wanted to see as a result of his ecumenical council, which was then in preparation. And uh, if you look through the documents of the Roman Synod, they are unbelievably conservative. They are not at all liberalizing. I mean, they tighten up an awful lot of things. They forbid women ever to enter the sanctuary. They insist on that clerics must wear clerical dress at all times, you know, um, you know, and when they have to wear their soup plate hat and when they have to wear their beretta. And, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's not at all a liberalizing uh, um, exercise at all, this Roman Synod of 1960. Very few people have actually heard of it, but it was a big deal at the time. And its documents were sent out to all the dioceses in the world to give them a sort of trailer for the sort of things that, that John XXIII had in mind for the 21st Ecumenical Council. So that seems to imply that he, his intentions, although he was having a bit of a laugh at the expense of the Cardinals by, by doing dramatic things, um, he was he, his intentions were conservative and certainly his liturgical tastes were conservative. Unlike Pius X, who couldn't stand the papal tiara, thought it looked ridiculous and insisted on always wearing it at a jaunty angle if anyone took his photograph. Um, John XXIII loved it. He liked massive gold encrusted copes um, and huge tiaras and he, he really got into all that kind of stuff, you know, truly Italian spirit. Um, and uh, so he doesn't seem to have been liturgically conservative in that sense at all. And that impression that he wasn't liturgically, sorry, he doesn't, doesn't seem to have been liturgically liberal at all. And, uh, and that impression that he was liturgically very conservative is strongly reinforced by the Apostolic Constitution Veterum Sapientiae, which he issued on the 11th of October 1962. So this is in the same year as the council is going to open. The council opens... Um, uh, sorry, I said the 11th of October, that's the opening of the council, I apologise, on the 22nd of February 1962. So uh, so the council opens in October, Veteran Sapientia is issued in, in February on the feast of the uh, chair of St. Peter. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, very strong attack on anyone who wants to try and reduce the use of Latin in the church. And it's not just an encyclical, it's an apostolic constitution. And he actually signed the constitution on the, on the, on the altar stone of the high altar of St. Peter's Basilica, which has never been done before or since, as far as I know. So he was very, very upset at rumours that his council was going to diminish the use of Latin in the church. And there's a strong theological argument there about the fact that Latin and Greek culture was, was, was put in place by divine providence in order to prepare the way for the church. And, uh, and, and and for her unity and the probably being important that it's a non-vernacular universal archaic language. So it's, it's well worth reading this document. It's very impressive, but it shows that he certainly didn't intend many of the consequences of what came thereafter. And in fact, he insisted on lectures in seminaries. He wanted to make sure that there was a, a, a fully Latinate uh, culture uh, ex continued existing within the church. Um, and so he... Um, 
he insisted that lectures in seminaries be delivered in Latin. And, and, and certainly I've heard it said by people who were around at the time that this had a slightly counterproductive effect because a lot of people just didn't have good enough Latin. So he ended up with like the lectures being cut to half the length and then delivered in English after they'd been finished being delivered in Latin. So the seminarians would actually understand what was being said to them. But I'm sure that wasn't John the 23rd's intention. Um, uh, but uh, you can see that there was a danger of the passing of Latinate culture. And I, I know I've cited C.S. Lewis several times before, but uh, for what it's worth, he gave an inaugural lecture uh, just shortly before this as a professor of, of medieval and Renaissance literature at the University of Cambridge. And, um, and in that one, he describes how the, he asks, what is the great chasm in Western history? Is it, you know, is it, is it the fall of the Roman Empire? Is it the world wars? Is it the French Revolution? He goes through various different possible, possible candidates for what is the great gap in Western history. He says, no, in, in the end, he says, no, it's now. He says, from, from, you know, 300 BC until now, educated Western man has been educated in a certain number of key classical texts in Greek and Latin, and they've all been part of one great classical conversation. And, uh, and there's been one overarching meta culture, as it were, in Western civilization, under which the, the cultures of the local particular languages have existed. And this is beginning to die out. And, uh, and so, uh, but I am, he says, there's entirely a product of this great metaculture and, um, but there aren't going to be many more people like me. And he says, if you want, if you were an enthusiast for dinosaurs and you had the option of either talking to the greatest uh, um, scientist of dinosaurs in the world or actually seeing a dinosaur, I think you would just go and see a dinosaur. So do come to my lectures because there won't be many more dinosaurs. So C.S. Lewis is already seeing it at that point as, 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 as highly under threat. And uh, I don't know if John Twenty Third had appreciated how much that was the case. Um, but he apparently did once he summoned the council because he started to hear these whispers and rumours that um, that, uh, that the Latin culture of the church was going to perish. And so he issued this absolute constitution, Veterum Sapientiae, in order to prevent it. So uh, the 11th of October, 1962, uh, the Second Vatican Council is opened with a vast and terrifying, magnificent ceremony of triumph uh, with thousands and thousands of bishops the largest ecumenical council has ever been. And of course, only, um, only a year or two beforehand, um, on the 20th of January, 1961, a certain John Fitzgerald Kennedy had been inaugurated as the president of the United States. So the sense that the Catholic Church was triumphant and unbelievably powerful and, uh, and, and, and immensely confident uh, permeated everything because the uh, not only was were all those governments of Western Europe which had previously been in the hands of anti-clerical Freemasons now uh, in the hands of Catholic political parties or Catholic political figures but uh, the US president himself the leader of the hegemonic power in the post-war world was now actually a Catholic himself but the fact that this wasn't an unalloyed blessing um, was already clear to the astute observer because Kennedy had himself uh, repudiated the idea that he would be guided by Catholic teaching in the exercise of his office in the course of the election campaign uh, in which he succeeded against Richard Nixon in becoming US president. Um, so the, the fact that there was a great deal of uncertainty and uncomfortableness with the social kingship of Christ uh, was already clear from Kennedy's actions. And in fact, there was a great uh, ex-communist 
leader, um, a chap called um, uh, Hamish Fraser, who had been the leader of communism in Scotland uh, and converted to Catholicism during the Second World War and became a great champion both of the message of Our Lady of Fatima and of the um, and of Catholic social teaching and the social kingship of Christ. He said uh, after things began to get difficult and unpleasant during Vatican II and afterwards, he said that uh, to, to liturgical traditionalists of which he was one, he used to insist that uh, the liturgy was not the source of the difficulties which occurred after the council. He said if, 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 the, uh, if the exact and traditional execution of the liturgy had been sufficient to preserve the church from the neo-modernist crisis, which came in the late 60s, um, then uh, the neo-modernist crisis would never have occurred in the first place, because obviously, um, obviously the liturgy was being uh, performed in an exact and traditional fashion at that time, uh, um, prior to the council. Um, instead, he said that it was, um, it was a, a, a loss of confidence and a loss of willingness to uh, boldly preach the social kingship of Christ, which lay behind the problems. That in the process of uh, Catholics coming out of the ghetto, as it were, as it was very popularly said at the time, um, which was causing some of these problems with higher rates of lapsation in the 1950s, in the course of that, um, Catholics had also found that um, uh, that they they as it were had to make make the final bid for the capital um, at that moment. The kingship, social kingship of Christ had to be realized or having come out of the ghetto, they would just be dissolved in the surrounding culture. And that was what was beginning to happen prior to the council with these higher rates of lapsation and an increasing uncertainty. So despite the great confidence of the opening session of the council, uh, that these difficulties were already present. Um, in fact, uh, there's a very interesting book uh, recently published by a chap called Stephen Bullivant, who's a theologian and a sociologist um, uh, from Britain. Uh, he's written a book called Mass Exodus, which is an analysis of uh, disaffiliation from the Catholic Church in the wake of the Second Vatican Council. And, uh, and much of the book is discussing um, uh, the various different possible explanations for this process. And, um, and, and one of his conclusions is that it was a sense that uh, despite the uh, triumphantness of the church at this time, that somehow uh, things were running out of control and disaster was possibly looming uh, that led to um, that led to the council fathers being willing to make gambles, to be willing to to try measures which were quite radical and, um, and, 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 and untested in the hope of avoiding some kind of collapse because they could see the dissipation of the church's position beginning in the late 1950s. And Hamish Fraser uh, would argue that that's because um, you can't go out of the ghetto without establishing the social kingship of Christ, because if you just find yourself exposed between the ghetto and the social kingship of Christ, you'll just end up being absorbed and dissolved. And, and this is what from the statistics after the council seems to have occurred. But nevertheless, on the 11th of October 1962, um, uh, things looked very, uh, very grand indeed um, with the US president as a Catholic and all these thousands of bishops at this uh, ecumenical council. Um, and, um, uh, and in fact, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred in the opening weeks of the council. 
Um, so, um, so it, just like a week and a half afterwards, um, uh, the, the missile crisis was uh, resolved. So people all over the world were looking to Kennedy, the first Catholic president of the United States, as the dashing, heroic leader of the free world, playing Russian roulette with uh, Nikita Khrushchev, um, uh, and uh, preventing nuclear annihilation, uh, but but holding his ground against against the Cuban missile bases. Um, so so it really did look as if you know um, uh, the future was bright and the future was Catholic. Um, now uh, in um, John the twenty third gives an opening address in which he says um, uh, that the um, he says on the eleventh of October he says that his intention is to retain all the precision. Of, of doctrine that was contained in Trent and Vatican I, um, but to um, but to attempt to uh, be more open to the rest of the world around the church uh, in order to communicate more successfully in a positive fashion uh, um, the truths of the faith so that uh, modern man sees um, that, that his deepest aspirations can be fulfilled uh, by returning home to uh, the, the bosom of the Catholic Church, and um, uh, one of one of the very senior cardinals, Cardinal Siri, uh, who was sitting there listening to this opening address, um, uh, he uh, recorded. Roberto de Matei describes this in his History of the Council. Um, he recorded his um, his his concern that this was sounded actually a little bit reckless, and uh, this could spiral out of control very rapidly. But then he. He squished the thought. He performed an act of mental obedience and 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 destroyed the thought, and no longer considered this idea that uh, that this might be slightly uh, dangerous prudential judgment. Um, and it's slightly depressing when you read this because because you realise that 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 this this sort of slightly insane ultramontanism that refuses to distinguish between the church, the pope's infallible doctrinal magisterium, and his prudential judgments is 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 preventing people even having a quiet word with the pope in order to advise him about these prudential judgments. So, but anyway. Um, uh, so the fact that things aren't going to go quite so easy as all that uh, becomes clear just uh, two days later on the 13th of October um, 1962 um, uh, during the opening session of the council, which shockingly, uh, well, the opening meeting of the council um, lasts only 15 minutes. And the reason it only lasts 15 minutes is because a bunch of bishops who are disenchanted with neo-scholasticism and, and are sympathetic to all these potentially disruptive trends that we've been discussing, um, have uh, particularly from those countries surrounding the Rhine, so they become known as the Rhine Group uh, subsequently, uh, they've all been meeting um, quietly before the council um, and they intend to get rid of uh, all the preparatory work that John XXIII had commissioned for the council. So uh, all these different commissions staffed by curial theologians have prepared schemas on many, many different topics to be discussed at the council. And so all that was supposed to happen on the opening day was that they were to vote on the members of the commissions that would uh, would draft the schemas into the final documents of the council. And uh, it was generally assumed in the Curia that the that people would largely vote for uh, the people who'd already drafted the texts. And then they would have back and forth with the bishops in the council and these the draft texts would be formed into um, 
the final documents, and then they would be voted on once or twice or three times or whatever, and then finally out would come the documents and ha ha, wonderful engagement with the modern world, but still precision, just like John the Twenty Third said, and everyone could go home and everyone will see how amazingly impressive the Catholic Church is now. It's obviously the only true church. Um, but it doesn't work like that. Um, uh, um, the uh, uh, Cardinal Leinhardt of Linear, probably it's pronounced, of uh, Lille, um, uh, who's one of the members of this Rhine group, immediately objects to there being any vote on the members of the commission because he says that they, nobody really knows who they are because they've only just arrived from all over the world. And so they need time to think about who they're going to vote for. And then uh, Cardinal Frings, Joseph Frings of Cologne, uh, um, backs him up. This is all, of course, planned in advance by the Rhine Group. And so uh, to everybody's surprise, the opening session is... Um, uh, the opening meeting of the council is suspended after only 15 minutes and off they go to uh, to think about who they'd like to be on the commissions. Uh, at this point, the Rhine group pulls another rather crafty manoeuvre and they go and talk to all the bishops from the third world and they say, oh, we don't want the council to be dominated by all these European bishops, especially the ones from the Mediterranean. You know, you lot need to have more of a say in these things. And, and uh, why don't we do a deal? If you vote for our slate of bishops, we'll we'll get some of you lot onto the onto the drafting committees as well. And it'll be a much more fully ecumenical council. Anyway, the third world bishops um, agree to this, and uh, and dutifully vote a few days later for the um, uh, for the Rhine Group's slate of bishops, who thereby seize control of all the drafting commissions for the council. Um, now, uh, the then a very famous incident occurs. Um, uh, they, they start to consider setting aside every single one of the schemas that have been drafted over three years by the Roman Curia for the consideration of the council. And um, the head of the Holy Office, uh, Cardinal Ottaviani, um, uh, who by this time is in his 80s, uh, he, he starts to deliver a speech, an impassioned speech, um, in which he says, you know, you can't just bin all this work, you know, what are you doing? He's sort of bewildered and, 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 and shocked at, at the way things are going. And, uh, but, uh, and he's talked for quite a long time, longer than the, than, the, than the minimum time period that's supposed to be being observed. But presumably Ottaviani, um, the maximum time period rather, presumably Ottaviani doesn't think that's going to be imposed very strictly because it certainly wasn't a Vatican I where they couldn't get the bishops to shut up and they go on and on and on. And you and you'd eventually get people from the floor of Vatican I heckling them and telling them to shut up um, because they've been there for hours. And um, uh, apparently at one point in Vatican I, a bishop stood up and said, actually, I think all the points I wanted to deal with have been dealt by people who've spoken before me, so I don't think I really need to say anything. And a huge cheer went up from all the other bishops. So, so, um, so Ottaviani probably thought that uh, that this was going, you know, that he had no idea that he was that there was going to be an attempt to shut him up, given he was one of the most senior cardinals in the entire church. Um, but instead, uh, he sort of sent some notes to say that his time is up, he doesn't pay much attention to them, and then... Uh, uh, Cardinal Leinart, who's actually in, in, in command of the microphones, switches off Ottaviani's microphone um, so that nobody can hear what he says. And then laughter begins to fill Saint, and cheers begin to fill St. Peter's Basilica. So the head of the Holy Office is completely humiliated just a few days into the council. And uh, contrary to his protestations, all of the schemas which have been prepared are set aside. 
Um, so uh, this all happens on the 16th of October 1962, uh, but there is one exception to this, which is the liturgical schema, which had been prepared under the direction of Annabel Bunini, who'd been responsible for the innovations in the Holy Week liturgies during the 1950s. Um, this one schema is not set aside, and as a result, it becomes the first document to be considered by the Council, and it ends up with its opening words being Sacrosanctum Concilium, um, uh, which becomes symbolic, so that the liturgy, uh, the liturgy document becomes symbolic of the Council as a whole, uh, because of its incipit, uh, the name derived from the first two words of the document. Um, now, uh, the liturgy document is not, uh, I remember being shocked as a young man, um, I was listening to a discussion uh, from among some, uh, some clergy who were talking about how they'd much prefer to, to, to uh, say mass in Latin, and these were priests who never said the traditional form of the Roman Rite, they just said the uh, the um, reformed version of the Roman Rite, produced later on by Paul VI, but they said how they'd much prefer to celebrate it in Latin and particularly much prefer to celebrate it facing East. And uh, and this is when I was a student undergraduate university and I objected and said that this was, um, this was how they couldn't, how could they possibly do that when this was, you know, this was forbidden by the Second Vatican Council. And they laughed loudly and said that I clearly had not read the liturgical documents of the Second Vatican Council. So I went away and read uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is, which uh, does not depart very much from the draft which Brunini and um, the other members of the commission had already prepared. Um, and indeed, if you read it with uh, a, even a small amount of naivety, uh, in the context of the Roman liturgy as it stood in 1962, uh, it would seem not to be a very radical document. It allows for a, uh, apparently very small use of the vernacular, um, insists on the use of Gregorian chant, insists that Latin remains the language of the Roman rite. Um, the most radical thing that it does on the face of it is abolish the office of prime. That is a bit sort of unexpected to just kind of chop out one of the eight offices of the church. It just says the office of prime is shall be suppressed. Boom, and that's it, it moves on to the next topic. Um, so, uh, but in fact, uh, the document contains an awful lot of coach and horses provisions. It's, there's a lots of things where it's left to the discretion of this bishop's conference or of the Pope or whatever. And in fact, it allows for quite a radical transformation of the Roman Rite. But if you read it uh, as it stood, um, without any kind of hermeneutic of suspicion, you would assume that it was, uh, it was not suggesting great changes in the Roman liturgy at all. Um, the cardinal who was the president of the commission that prepared the document, so he, he, he was just sort of supervisory figure, he wasn't, um, he wasn't actually, uh, uh, actually drafting it himself, he became very uneasy about it um, uh, when he had finally had to sign off on it and began to worry that this was, there was something a bit funny about it and that it was, it was going to lead to much more sweeping alterations than it looked like it was going to lead to. And he wouldn't sign it. And all the other schemas, the ones that were subsequently rejected, had all been agreed and signed by their various cardinal presidents of their different commissions. Um, but this one couldn't be, and uh, because this, this cardinal wouldn't do it. And eventually, um, uh, the Bunini and uh, the brother of the Cardinal came round to see him at his own home and, and put a lot of pressure on him and said that John XXIII was upset that everything was being held back. And eventually a very unhappy and upset uh, Cardinal finally signed off on the document. So he had already perceived that there was more likely to change as a result of this document than people really realised. Um, 
but anyway, uh, he signed it and uh, it got uh, it got through the various commissions. However, um, uh, just before the death of John XXIII, people sometimes don't realise that none of the documents of the council were ever actually promulgated or signed off on by John XXIII um, because he uh, he died um, before um, before this could happen. He died on the 3rd of June, 1963. The first session ended on the 8th of December, 1962. And uh, the second session at which Sacrosanctum Concilium was promulgated uh, began on the 29th of September. So some months after his death. So, but not but shortly before his death, uh, for reasons which remain mysterious, um, uh, John XXIII became very concerned about but Annabel Bunini apparently removed him from all of his positions. He was left as only a consultative expert, expert on the actual commission that would draft Sacrosanctum Concilium instead of being leading it up, as had been as as had been presumed, and lost his positions in other areas as well. But John the Twenty Third died very shortly after that, and as far as we know, I don't think the records for his pontificate have been opened up yet. But as far as we know, took to his grave his reasons for suddenly becoming so negative about Annabel Bunini. Um, in fact, uh, it's said that Jean Guiton, who was a friend of, uh, who's a layman, who's a friend of both John XXIII and Paul VI, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, there's a, it's claimed that Guiton claimed that uh, that uh, the last words of John XXIII were stop the council, stop the council, that uh, his his easygoingness about the, uh, the friskiness of the council in its opening weeks had started to dissolve by the time of his death, but um, that, that story is disputed and pretty much impossible to verify, so it's hard to say. So exactly what his view on things remains somewhat mysterious, uh, John the twenty-third. Um, so uh, on the twenty-first of June, uh, so the council was suspended because under the canon law, then in force, uh, and so I think still in force, um, ecumenical councils uh, are automatically suspended by the death of a sitting pope, so that uh, his successor can decide freely whether or not to carry on with them. Um, but uh, Montini, uh, the chap who translated into Maritime's Integral Humanism into Italian, and who was a, who was a sort of right-hand man of, of Pius XII, but about whom Pius XII had some concerns, he, he used to call him R. Hamlet, because he thought that he often sort of used to get trapped in indecision about certain things. Um, in ways that could go badly. Um, but anyway, Montini, who by then was a cardinal, I don't think he made the red hat under Pius XII, perhaps because of his reservations, but he did do under John XXIII. And he was then uh, elected Pope on the 20, Paul VI on the 21st of June, 1963. Um, and it was it was definitely understood by the cardinals that that, that Montini was in favour of continuing with the council, so 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 his his victory in that conclave was a, a decision by the cardinals effectively to carry on with the council, which reopens on the 29th of September 1963, with a new opening address by the new pope, which is which has much more the the emphasis on openness to the modern world updating and ecumenism is is much stronger uh, in that opening address where whereas it was a it was a uh, it was important but but more hedged about uh, in john the 23rds than in um paul the sixths um the uh the spirit of innovation had 
become much stronger by this point. Uh, Cardinal Frings of Cologne, the chap who backed up uh, Leinhardt um, over the um, setting aside uh, all the delaying of the uh, elections to the commissions, uh, gives a famous speech on the 8th of November 1963, denouncing the very existence of the Holy Office, which leads to another impassioned and, 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 uh, and offended speech in defence of the Holy Office by Cardinal Ottaviani. Um, and then, uh, and then on December the fourth, uh, which uh, is the uh, end of the second session, um, uh, the first two documents of the council are promulgated: uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the document on the liturgy, and uh, Intermarifica, the document on the means of social communication, which I. Uh, a friend of mine estimated it has been read by very few people. Um, but anyway, um, uh, those are the first two documents of the council. Um, the third session opened on the 14th of September 1964 and went on to the uh, 21st of November, the same year. And uh, uh, that issued um, uh, the, the one of the most important documents. There are 16 documents of the council in total. Four, the four most important are constitutions. Of those constitutions, the two most important are the two dogmatic constitutions, which are Lumen Gentium on the Church, which is issued during the third session, and a Sacrosanctum Concilium uh, on, sorry, not Sacrosanctum Concilium, a De Verbum on um, uh, Divine Revelation, which is issued during the fourth session. The other two constitutions are um, the one on the liturgy, which is not called a dogmatic constitution, it's just a constitution, um, and that's issued during the second session, the one that we've been discussing, um, and then uh, the church on, on in, in, in the present time, what uh, Gaudium et Spes, which is often called the church in the modern world, although that's not a strictly literal translation of its uh, title in Latin, which is issued during the fourth session. Um, so the two most important of all are Lumen Gentium and De Verbum, the ones on the church and scripture. Um, and that's issued uh, in on the last day of the third session, along with uh, Unitatis Redintegratio, the document on ecumenism, and uh, Orientalium Ecclesiarum, the document on the um, Eastern churches. Um, uh, something very important happens during the vote on um, uh, Lumen Gentium, uh, because John XXIII had always emphasised that this was to be a pastoral council. Um, uh, but what that meant in terms of the theological authority of the documents it was going to produce was never fully established. Uh, it wasn't clear initially what that meant, uh, how that affected the authority of, of what the council was going to do. Um, and uh, so the Theological Commission, before the vote on Lumen Gentium, uh, because Lumen Gentium deals with a number of quite important topics, uh, the Council Fathers were like, well, we really want a bit more clarity as to what the authority of the documents is that we're producing here. And so the Theological Commission produced a statement saying the Sacred Council defines as binding on the Church only those matters, things in matters of faith and morals, which it shall openly declare to be binding. And it says that this is in view of the pastoral nature of the council. So what this seems to do is it means that um, whereas the documents of Vatican I and the documents of Trent are prefaced with uh, strong statements of the fact that they are um, that they are defining Catholic doctrine, uh, and they end with anathematizing canons, but even the prose text beforehand constitutes a definition of Catholic doctrine. In the case of Vatican II, only when a very explicit statement 
that the, the, the council is making a decision on a doctrinal point is made in the text, is that part of the text uh, covered by the charism of infallibility. The rest of the text is covered um, by the, the grace of the authentic magisterium, which we discussed beforehand, the same sort of protection as is afforded to the ordinary prose content of a papal encyclical. Um, and this is going to become a source of confusion because um, uh, as, um, as Ratzinger pointed out later on, um, people didn't seem to really realize the, uh, the, the, this nuance concerning the nature of the authority of the council. So, so Ratzinger complained years later, Ratzinger was at the council, he was actually a peritus, an expert assigned to Cardinal Frings of Cologne, um, the one who attacked the Holy Office just now. Um, uh, and Ratzinger complained later on, he said, the Second Vatican Council has not been treated as part of the entire living tradition of the church, but as an end of tradition, a new start from zero. The truth is that this particular council defined no dogma at all and deliberately chose to remain on a modest level as a merely pastoral council. And yet so many treat it as though it made itself into a sort of super dogma, which takes away the importance of all the rest, right? So, so th this distinction is very important important to understand in order to interpret the council properly um, and um, in fact if you if you look at all the 21 councils that we've been looking at uh, you can arrange them in a hierarchy of how important the councils were in an, on an objective level in accordance with the nature of the authority of councils so um, the most important councils are those, the most important things that a council does is to solemnly define dogmas, that is, is to give a definitive formulation to truths which are revealed by God. And Vatican II didn't do that. And Paul VI says explicitly, just like Ratzinger said there, Paul VI said at the end of the council that it had not defined any dogmas. He says that explicitly at the end. The second most important thing that a council does is to solemnly define doctrines. And those are things which follow logically from or, or are necessary to defend the truths which are divinely revealed, but which are not themselves directly divinely revealed. So defined doctrines are equally infallible to define dogmas, but the contrary of them is error and not heresy. So it's of, of a lesser order, but they're still guarded by the infallibility of the church. Now, I would say that there's about 10 or 11 doctrines which are defined by Vatican II, which uh, perhaps we'll see. Um, whereas um, uh, the next most important thing it does is issue laws for the entire universal church. So a lot of those laws uh, in the Corpus Juris Canonici that existed before um, the creation of the Code of Canon Law by Pius X and Benedict XV were accumulated from ecumenical councils. Now, Vatican II said lots of things about disciplinary changes, which it would like to see after the council, but it didn't actually promulgate any laws as such. <coughs> so insofar as those disciplinary changes were put into effect, and it's controversial how far they were put into effect. So, for example, some people would say that a reasonable reading of the document on the liturgy would have implied a much less dramatic change to the Roman Missal as it stood in 1962. But anyway, uh, insofar as they were put into effect, they were put into effect by the popes. They were the ones who created the new Code of Canon Law in 1983 and made the other changes in the meantime. So although the council expressed its view on discipline and prudence, uh, it didn't actually legislate 
Um, so, so Vatican II didn't do that. And then the, the, the fourth uh, most important thing, the least most important thing that the council does is to express its view. Well, I suppose there's two more. One is to express merely authentic teaching, like a papal encyclical that doesn't contain any definitions. Some, some do, but most don't contain definitions. And then the last of all is to express its views on prudential questions. Um, and the council does those two things. So Vatican II defines doctrines about 11 times. It defines no dogmas. It doesn't legislate for the entire universal church. It does express its views. It does express authentic teaching in very, very large quantities, which helped to create this impression of the council as a sort of super dogma that Ratzinger complains about um, because there's so much teaching there. But in fact, it's not the teaching that's there is on the authentic level. And it also expresses its views on various prudential questions. So if, if you look at it that way, objectively, according to the actual objective meaning and authority of ecumenical councils, it's actually, uh, surprisingly, the 17th uh, ranking of the 21 ecumenical councils, because all those that define dogma and legislated for the universal church uh, or uh, rank above it, um, and all those that define doctrine and legislate for the universal church rank above it. And the only ones that are below it are the ones which uh, either only legislated and didn't define anything or, uh, yeah, that's it, basically, or only define doctrines, although I don't think there's, but didn't legislate. But I think Vatican II is unique in that. So, um, so uh, several of the Laterans uh, and uh, Leon I would come below Vatican II uh, in their ranking in the in the hierarchy of councils, but uh, but as as Ratzinger says, it was a pastoral council in intention. But it did define doctrines. So um, uh, so Lumen Gentium um, uh, is one of the most, as I say, one of the two most important documents of the council, and uh, and it defines uh, one possibly two doctrines. Um, uh, in fact, Intermorifica had already defined one doctrine, the one that nobody reads. Um, uh, Intermorifica says the second problem, it's, it's going through a number of difficulties, second problem concerns the interrelation of the principles of what is termed art and the standards of morality, since increasing disputes on this subject frequently arise from false ethical and aesthetical principles. The council decrees that the absolute primacy of an objective moral law must be held by all, right? So that's the first thing that's defined by Vatican II, that the absolute primacy of an objective moral law must be held by all. Nobody ever reads that document, nobody's aware that it's there. The funny thing about these 11 definitions is that nobody knows they exist, basically. I mean, I mean, there's only one of them that is ever really controversial and, 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 and everybody else just sort of ignores them. Because in fact, what happened was, is that the Rhine group and their various expert, experts were very keen to insert uh, ambiguous phrases into the council, which they would subsequently interpret as having caused a rupture with the previous teaching of the church. But in order to get them through, uh, they put them into the parts that they, they made sure they didn't actually say anything uh, unorthodox. They just said something ambiguous, which could be interpreted either in an orthodox or an unorthodox sense. And they... And they put them in those parts of the council documents which were not definitive 
Um, so which made it easier to get them through. And, and they weren't that worried, as long as they got their ambiguous phrases in, they weren't that worried about what the, what, it, what the council document said elsewhere. So in fact, as I found with the liturgy document, if you go back and read the council documents, you often find they're quite strikingly conservative. And a lot of the people who are so enthusiastic about the spirit of the Second Vatican Council are very unenthusiastic about the letter of the Second Vatican Council, because much of the basic prose of the text is extremely conservative and highly edifying. And the bits which are problematic are low ranking and only ambiguous. They don't actually teach anything false. Um, uh, Lumen Gentium, for example, Lumen Gentium 18, um, uh, which is was being produced here in the third session of the council, um, uh, says this Holy Synod following in the footsteps of the first Vatican Council, along with that council, teaches and declares that Jesus Christ, the eternal shepherd, built his holy church by sending apostles just as he himself had been sent by the Father. It was his will that their successors, namely the bishops, should be shepherds in his church right to the end of the world. So the episcopate itself, however, should be one and undivided. He placed blessed Peter over the rest of the apostles and in him instituted a perpetual and visible principle and foundation for the unity of faith and communion. This doctrine of the institution, the perpetuity and the force and the nature of the sacred primacy of the Roman pontiff and of his infallible magisterium, the synod once more proposes to be firmly believed by all the faithful. Now that is very clearly a definition. In fact, it's actually a dogmatic definition, but um, what uh, Paul VI said strictly was that there were no new dogmatic definitions. And in fact, because it's basically saying exactly the same thing as Vatican I, it's not a new dogmatic definition, but one could hardly object to it. The other, the other thing which is uh, apparently defined, there's some dispute over this by Lumen Gentium, uh, is, that the, uh, is that episcopal orders are um, a, a distinct grade of the sacrament of orders which involves a character being imposed um, which had been a question disputed up to that point although the council's language in this is in lumen gentium 21 the council language there is not quite as emphatic as it is in uh, the uh, one i just read so it says the sacred council teaches that by episcopal consecration the fullness of the sacrament of orders is conferred that fullness of power namely which both in the church's liturgical practice and in the language of the fathers of the church is called the high priesthood the supreme power of the sacred ministry but episcopal consecration together with the office of sanctifying also confers the office of teaching and of governing which have of its very nature can be exercised only in hierarchical communion with the head and members of the college for from the tradition which is expressed especially in liturgical rites and in the practice of both the church of the east and of the west it is clear that by means of the imposition of hands and the words of consecration the grace of the holy spirit is so conferred and the sacred character so impressed that bishops in an eminent and a visible way sustain the roles of christ himself as teacher shepherd and high priest and that they act in his person therefore it pertains to the bishops to admit newly elected members into the episcopal body by means of the sacrament of orders now that's quite important because uh, it had been held by some uh, uh, theologians, including St. Thomas, that really priesthood is what the Sacrament of Orders is all about, and that Episcopal consecration just sort of unleashes powers which are already inherent in, uh, in, the, in the presbyteral grade of orders. And so there's nothing substantial uh, added 
And this view had even expressed itself in a number of dispensations that popes had given in the Middle Ages to allow abbots who were only priests to ordain other people to the priesthood, now which, which we would now hold to be invalid. Um, so it's quite interesting that this, if this is a solemn definition, which a lot of people think it is, there's some dispute over it. But if it is a solemn definition, then it would make it clear that those dispensations were null and void, which in a rather salutary way uh, emphasises to everybody the fact that prudential decisions of popes are not guaranteed by uh, from on high. Um, and in fact, um, uh, was something else which has come up recently because uh, apparently the, the Congregation for Divine Worship told people that baptism in in the of baptismal formula that turns out to be invalid was uh, was okay but naughty um, uh, so um so those are the two things which are defined by lumen gentium but the um but as with as with the other conciliar documents, as I was just explaining, uh, it's it's not the things that are defined, but the more ambiguous sections which end up causing all the trouble after the council. So it's actually Lumen Gentium section 16, uh, which raises the possibility of the salvation of non-Christians, which ends up being seen as the great innovation that overthrew previous Catholic teaching. And Pope Benedict XVI has also talked about this. He gave an interview after he abdicated as Pope, um, uh, in which he um, in which he said that um, uh, this had caused a deep double crisis in the church because uh, it had caused people to think that um, uh, why do we bother evangelizing anybody, and uh, also why do we bother obeying the the laws and practices of the church as Catholics? Because I mean, if we could have been saved just by observing the natural law, then it's a bit of a pain that we have to you know not eat meat on Fridays and not use the pill and all this kind of stuff. Um, so so uh, in fact, uh, Ratzinger slash Pope Benedict. Uh, traces back a lot of the post-conciliar crisis to the ambiguities contained in Lumen Gentium 16. Um, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger slash Pope Benedict is very uneasy, I think, about um, Lumen Gentium 16. He sees that it's a cause of huge numbers of problems, but he, he probably errs towards the more liberal interpretation of that document. Although it's interesting that... Um, uh, the um, which was of course the sort of thing that Rana was pushing for when he got that uh, letter from the Holy Office that wasn't in the Acta included in Denzinger. Um, uh, it's interesting that um, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which quotes the relevant passage from Lumen Gentium 16, it immediately follows it uh, directly with a passage from a later document of the Council, Ad Gentes, the uh, um, document on missionary activity, <clears throat> paragraph seven, which uh, which makes a very important distinction, uh, which removes the uh, problematic character of, of, of one of the two possible interpretations of Lumen Gentium 16, because Lumen Gentium 16 says that those who uh, cooperate uh, as far as lies within them with uh, divine grace and try to follow the natural law can also be saved, right? Um, but there's a number of different ways of interpreting that. It, uh, it, it could mean... Um, it could mean that in that condition of not knowing the gospel and trying to cooperate with natural law, they could be justified and made at rights with God. And that's the more liberal interpretation, which gives rise to the deep double crisis that Pope Benedict talked about. Um, but the more conservative interpretation, which would be more in line with Monsignor Fenton, who was actually at the council as a peritus of Cardinal Taviani, uh, the way more in line with the way that he interpreted the letter of the Holy Office um, in 1949, 
Um, uh, the other interpretation is that this just means that God will not leave such a person in that condition until death without bringing it about that they are justified through coming to the faith. So that the paragraph is not describing the state of someone who's actually justified, it's just describing the state of someone who is cooperating with grace in such a way that God will not leave him like that without him, without the faith reaching him. And that is actually clarified by Ad Gentes, paragraph 7, which says that it describes the same set of people, and it says that that God can bring such people in ways known to him alone to that faith without which it is impossible to please him. So Ad Gentes 7 clarifies that those in the state described in Lumen Gentium 16 are not, do not please God. They do not have that faith without which it is impossible to please him. But this is a classic case, in fact, the most important case probably, of an ambiguous uh, phrase in the council, which was going to cause serious problems in the church after the council, and yet belongs to the authentic part of the teaching rather than the definitive part of the teaching of the council. Anyway, so um, uh, <clears throat> Lumen Gentium was voted on by the Council Fathers and passed with that caveat about the fact that it was only when, uh, open, uh, when something was openly declared to be binding that it counted as, um, as definitive. Another question in Lumen Gentium which causes a great deal of controversy, which Marcel Lefebvre got very upset about, is the question of collegiality. And I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to have to ask for a free pass on that question because I've never really understood why the question of collegiality was a big problem because uh, it own, the, the council only attributes uh, supreme governing power of the universal church to the body of bishops uh, together with the Pope and never apart from him. So in, uh, in, in technical terms, it, it could never, it never diminishes or alters the complete control over the church that the Pope can exercise if he wishes to. Um, but uh, in regard to these ambiguities, there's an interesting book called Turmoil and Truth. Uh, it's actually really a two-part book. Uh, the first part's called Turmoil and Truth. The second part's called The Catholic Church and the Counterfaith, which was produced by a, an ecclesiastical journalist and novelist from Britain called Philip Trower. And he tries to explain the problem that's created by these ambiguities. And he gives a rather good example. He says that it's a bit like as if the council had said that it's absolutely necessary that in baptism liquid be poured over the head of the catechumen. Right now, that's absolutely true. It is absolutely necessary that in baptism liquid be poured over the head of the catechumen. But the question arises: Why would you say liquid rather than water? Right. So uh, there's nothing false being taught there. Of course, Vatican II didn't say this. It's a hypothetical example. There's nothing false being taught there by saying that liquid has to be poured over the head of the catechumen in baptism. But by saying liquid rather than water, the impression is generated that you don't think that water is absolutely necessary, that perhaps beer or orange juice or, or, or washing detergent or, or whatever might work instead. Right now, obviously, that's nonsense. And it wouldn't have said that by saying that it was liquid, but you can see why that sort of impression would be given. So this is the sort of difficulty that arises with Lumen Gentium 16 and later arises with uh, De Verbum 11. Um, so uh, also on the last day of the third session, um, uh, Paul VI announced the reduction of the Eucharistic fast to uh, only one hour. And uh, this has much, because Catholics who are very informed about the faith often think that these uh, fiddly questions about uh, ambiguous doctrinal formulae are, are what made the biggest impact in the 60s. But actually many things like 
later on the loss of, of abstinence from meat on Fridays, but also the reduction of the Eucharistic fast to one hour had a huge impact in ordinary, uh, the ordinary lives of the faithful because it made them feel that things which had caused hardship for them and which had been badges of Catholic identity, which they'd maintained for many years, uh, were now being cast away as if they hadn't really mattered after all. And that caused A, a certain degree of anger and B, an unwillingness to bother observing whatever the new procedures were because they've been exposed as apparently as not really that important after all. Thomas Aquinas talks about this a little bit in his treatise on law, how it causes enormous danger to alter even not particularly good laws because of the, the great loss of authority which laws in general suffer as a result. Something else which occurred immediately after the close of the third session was what was known as vernacular Sunday. So already the apparently very conservative provisions in Sacrosanctum Concilium for the use of vernacular languages in the liturgy were being much more broadly interpreted. And on the 29th of November 1964, which was then the first Sunday of Advent, all over the world, um, uh, um, dramatic vernacular masses, which are now also often being celebrated facing the people, even though the council had said nothing about that, um, uh, started being um, held. And, uh, and of course, again, for the ordinary Catholic in the pew, that was much more dramatic. I remember talking to a, 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 a woman who was a, a young lady in her late teens, I think at the time this happened, and she, she was English, a working class origin. And she said to me, it just felt like we were admitting that the Protestants had been right all along. Now, from a theologian's point of view, that sounds ridiculous. Why would that mean that we were admitting that the Protestants have been right all along? Um, the question of which language the Mass is in is not, in the final analysis, a deeply theological question upon which great doctrines rise or fall. But to an ordinary person where their engagement with the faith and their badge of the truth of the Catholic faith as opposed to the Protestant innovations is precisely the way in which the liturgy is expressed to suddenly have the priest facing you across what looks much more like a table and speaking in English uh, seems like a complete capitulation. And that was particularly felt in the English-speaking world, where Catholicism was particularly triumphalist and felt its great superiority over Protestantism, um, which it was now, as it were, having taken from it. So the fourth and final session of the Council was held from the 14th of September 1965 to the 8th of December 1965. And uh, the, first, um, the first document um, which was uh, promulgated um, and voted through in that session was uh, Dignitatis Humanae, the Declaration Concerning Religious Liberty, and that is in some ways uh, the most controversial of the documents of the Council. Um, it's, uh, it's one of the ones that Lefebvre directly attributed error to. Um, uh, the, um, and I'm just trying to find the passage, here we are. Um, uh, and it defines the existence of a right of religious liberty. Now, it would take a long time in the entire podcast to go through why I would hold that uh, there is no conflict between the right of religious liberty identified in that document and, uh, and the teaching of the church concerning the obligations of the political order to the true religion and the Church of Christ. Um, basically, to do it in extreme summary form, an enormous amount of helpful work has been done on this by a, a, a great philosopher, uh, not father, excuse me, Mr. Professor Thomas Bink um, of the University of London, King's College, has written a lot on this. Um, that uh, what the council was actually doing is it was saying that 
in and of itself, the temporal power doesn't have the right to coerce people in regard to the true religion, right? So in fact, the right of religious liberty that the council identifies only pertains to the worship of the supreme being, it says in the council, meaning that it only, only pertains to monotheism. So it doesn't extend to forms of paganism or Mormonism or, or atheism or whatever. It's not a right of religious liberty between all religions and none. It's a right between different religions and it only relates to monotheism. Um, uh, and in addition to that, it only relates to the coercive power of the state. So it doesn't touch on the power of the church to coerce offending members of the faithful, a power which is still embodied in canon law, in canon 1311 of the 1983 Code of Canon Law, emphasises that the church has the power to coerce offending members of the faithful with, with penal sanctions. Um, and it also uh, doesn't uh, in any way um, uh, remove or abolish, as was insisted by the document itself, the uh, obligation of the civil power to embrace the true religion. Um, so, so the key passage is, first, the council professes its belief that God himself has made known to mankind the way in which men are to serve him and thus be saved in Christ and come to blessedness. We believe that this one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, to which the Lord Jesus committed the duty of spend, spreading it abroad among all men. Thus he spoke to the apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've enjoined upon you. On their part, all men are bound to seek the truth, especially in what concerns God and his church, and to embrace the truth that they come to know and hold fast to it. This Vatican Council likewise professes its belief that it is upon the human conscience that these obligations fall and exert their binding force. The truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth, as it makes its entrance into the mind at once quietly and with power. Now that's not novel, it's just saying that you're not allowed to force people to become Catholics, which has always been the teaching of the church. Religious freedom, in turn, which men demand as necessary to fulfil their duty to worship God. So it, it arises from the duty itself. So it's a duty to recognise and embrace the true religion, which gives rise to a right to recognise and embrace the true religion, has to do with immunity from coercion in civil society. And this is what Pink strongly emphasises, that it's immunity from coercion by the state, not immunity from coercion by the church. And in fact, the drafting committee was asked about this in the council and said this does not relate, this document does not relate to the coercive power of the church or indeed how it could be delegated to a state which was recognizing the truth of the catholic faith but not acting as a state but as an instrument of the church therefore it leaves untouched the traditional catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies towards the true religion and toward the one church of christ and in fact vatican ii in this document cites immortale dei of leo the 13th um, which lays out um, uh, what that duty is over and above this, the Council intends to develop the doctrine of recent popes on the inviolable rights of the human person and the constitutional order of society. This Vatican Council declares that the human person has a right to religious freedom. This freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or social groups and of any human power. So again, that's excluding the church in such wise that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others within due limits. So again, this is a very important caveats here because 
uh, a formal heretic, for example, who would have been uh, rather severely punished by the uh, temporal power acting as the instrument of the spiritual power in the Middle Ages, would be punished not for acting in accordance with his own beliefs, but in, for, in, for acting contrary to his own beliefs, right? So it's not covered by this right of religious liberty that's here, because a formal heretic is precisely someone who knows that he is dissenting from the teaching of the church to which he had previously adhered. Um, the council further declares that the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the very dignity of the human person as this dignity is known through the revealed word of God and by reason itself. So in fact requires both of those to see this because by natural reason alone you would think that um, it was an important duty of the state to recognize and embrace and impose the true religion. It's only because uh, when we discover what the true religion is, it tells us that you're not allowed to impose it by force, uh, that we know that, that, that there is this immunity from coercion. So it's actually a theological strictly rather than a purely philosophical truth. This right of the human person to religious freedom is to be recognized in a constitutional law whereby society governed, is governed and thus it is to become a civil right. So properly interpreted in the light of the actual discussions at the council and the various qualifications which were made about the fact that this was not abolishing the traditional teaching of the church on the obligations of the temporal power to the true religion and that it didn't concern the coercive power of the church, um, this was in fact not innovative. However, the document certainly to anyone who isn't um, uh, very, very, very careful in sifting through the words and, and considering the meaning of all the caveats and looking at the discussions and the back and forth between the drafting commission and the council fathers, it would probably sound like it was teaching something like the classical liberal doctrine of religious liberty that John Courtney Murray was very excited about. And in fact, John Courtney Murray was involved in the drafting of the early stages of this document, but then I think he had a car crash and was as a consequence knocked out of the drafting for the rest of the, uh, it's one of these special Holy Spirit directed car crashes, um, uh, um, uh, knocked out of the uh, procedure for putting together the document for the rest of the council. Um, okay, so um, uh, so then uh, Gaudium et Spes, which is very long and uh, and which we won't go into, the pastoral constitution of the church and the modern world, again, that had much more impact in just in terms of the general sort of slightly if I may be forgiven for saying so, banally optimistic tone of enthusiasm about the modern world that the document contains rather than anything that it particularly says. Although it has to be said that um, uh, there was a passage in it, uh, I think it was um, Gaudium et Spes uh, paragraph, uh, where are we? Paragraph, where have you gone, Ratzinger? Ratzinger was not very happy. Yes, it was 17, paragraph 17. Ratzinger was who actually contributed to an early commentary on Gaudium et Spes. And, um, and he described paragraph 17 of Gaudium et Spes as downright Pelagian, which is quite strong language. Um, in fact, I mean, Ratzinger was more, had more reservations about the council than, than, than necessarily always appeared. He, he, um, he even quoted at one point uh, the famous uh, German professor Robert Speyman as having said that the adjournamento, the updating, which John the Twenty Third was was so enthusiastic about. <clears throat> um, uh, professor Robert Speyman, who died recently, described adjournamento as the art of turning wine into water, which is really very rude. Um, and uh, but Ratzinger, in an address, I think it was to the U.S. bishops, actually quoted that statement with approval. Um, Gaudium et Spes is very long, contains lots of authentic teaching, which, as I say, is it contains it's not so much the, the word for word things that it says as, as the tone which could be led to to uh, to lead to difficulties. 
um, it does contain one definition of doctrine, which is basically just that you shouldn't nuke cities. As Gatim Espes 80 says, with all this in mind, the Holy Synod adopts the condemnations of total war, which have already been uttered by recent popes, and declares every operation of war which aims indiscriminately at the destruction of whole cities or widespread areas with their inhabitants is a crime against God and humanity itself, which is to be firmly and unhesitatingly condemned. And in fact, that's the only sentence in the entire council which uses the word condemn. Um, uh, so that that's uh, again fulfills the criteria for um uh, for infallibility um laid down by the council um uh, then uh, after that uh, they put together the decree agentes which we've said is already is important not because it contains any definitive teaching it doesn't but because uh, paragraph seven um gives very important qualification which uh, defangs the possibly unorthodox interpretation of lumen gentium paragraph 16 uh, there's a document on the life and ministry of priests doesn't contain any definitions and then of course de verbum um, uh, the document on divine revelation, which is uh, one of the two highest ranking documents, one of the two dogmatic constitutions, that contains two solemn definitions and one ambiguous sentence. Um, so, so the the ambiguous sentence uh, says that the uh, that the church teaches firmly, faithfully, and without error. Sorry, the the Bible teaches firmly, faithfully, and without error that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished it to contain. Right, um, and. Uh, uh, which is all fine and true, but of course uh, the naughty modernist theologians uh, were very excited about that sentence uh, because they were planning to interpret for the sake of our salvation as meaning only some of scripture. So it basically renders the doctrine of, of scriptural inerrancy meaningless because it ends up being the private theological opinion of the person reading the document as to which bits of it are actually necessary for our salvation that determines which parts of it are to be treated as inerrant. So it takes a great ax to the doctrine of scriptural inerrancy. Now, as with all of these ambiguous statements, it's impossible to read it in this modernist fashion if you just read it in the light of the other parts of the document. So in, fact, in this case, it's very extreme because it's just two sentences earlier. The document says that scripture contains everything that the Holy Spirit wanted it to contain and nothing else. Else. So, which makes it impossible um, to interpret the, the later statement about for the sake of our salvation as restricting the inerrancy of scripture. But presumably our Teutonic theological friends think that there was a dramatic development of doctrine in the two or three seconds between the reading out of the, that sentence and the sentence, uh, um, uh, uh, yes, uh, an inch lower down the page in the document. But uh, when it comes to the things which are actually defined by Dave Verbum, they're very conservative as usual. So Dave Verbum says, the four gospels originate from the apostles as the church has always and everywhere held and still holds, right? So again, that's just reasserting in a way, the definition of um, uh, Trent concerning the authorship of the uh, four gospels in the decree on the canonical scriptures. And then Dave Verbum 19, the following section says, Holy Mother Church has firmly and with absolute constancy held and continues to hold that the four gospels just named whose historical character the church unhesitatingly asserts, faithfully hand on what Jesus Christ while living among men really did and taught for their eternal salvation until the day he was taken up into heaven. Now that sentence, which is authoritative definition of doctrine, is a would be um, you know is is would be news to a lot of the uh, biblical critics uh, who um, who uh, 
ruined Catholic biblical studies in the decades after the Second Vatican Council and, uh, and were very happily discarding vast chunks of the evangelists' writings in the course of their writings. So again, as I say, oddly enough, while I think it is important to understand that the that Vatican II is only the 17th highest ranking council of the church um, in terms of its uh, authority and, and the way it exercises it. Nevertheless, the documents themselves contain very important conservative um, uh, anti-modernist statements, um, uh, which, which Catholics need to be equipped with, because uh, half the victory is won by the neo-modernists by having won the propaganda war that they won across the board in the council, simply by adopting a slightly too optimistic tone and getting in a few ambiguous statements, which, which are not really so terribly important. Uh, yes, um, so... Um, nearly there. Um, uh, so uh, after Dave Irvin, we have um, Christus Dominus, uh, Perfecti Caritatis and Optatum Totius, concerning bishops and religious and uh, the training of priests. Um, Christ on Christian education, Gravissimum Educationis, and on the role of the laity, Apostolicam Actuosa, Actuositatem, um, and Nostra Etate, um, a statement on non-Christian religions. That contains a number of ambiguous uh, statements, but then they're not incapable of being interpreted in line with the previous teaching of the church. Often people try to portray the statement of Nostra Etate that the Jews of the present day are in no way responsible for the death of Christ any more than the Christians of the present day as a, as a wonderful new departure for the church and a great novelty. That's nonsense. It's not a wonderful new departure for the church at all. It's always been taught by the church. I mean, it's said by the fathers and it's said by, it's said in the Roman catechism produced by the Council of Trent. So again, it's a sort of propaganda victory, the attempt to make it sound as if um as if we uh as if we were all terribly anti-semitic before vatican ii which is not true at all of course there have been bad anti-semitic christians just like there have been adulterous and murderous christians but uh, that doesn't enter into the teaching of the church um uh yes so there we are so that ends up with um uh that end gives us uh um uh, 16 documents, four constitutions um, uh, that I, did, I, I omitted to mention, uh, going over that, a couple more definitions. Nostra Etate says, moreover, Christ, as the church has always held and holds, went willingly and with immense love to his passion and death because of the sins of all people, so that all may obtain salvation. Right? So that's just an anti-Jansenist statement, um, not a problem. Um, uh, and... Um, uh, tom, 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 um, done, getting at spes. Uh, the other two are the definitions concerning the autonomy of the Eastern churches, which are included in the second wave of documents. The document on the Eastern churches and the document on ecumenism is almost word for word identical in both. It says the Sacred Council, therefore, not only accords to this ecclesiastical and spiritual heritage, this is of the Eastern non Latin churches, the high regard which is its and rightful praise, but also unhesitating look, looks on it as the heritage of the universal church. For this reason, it solemnly declares that the churches of the East, as much as those of the West, have a full right and are in duty bound to rule themselves, each in accordance with its own established disciplines, since all these are praiseworthy by reason of their venerable antiquity, more harmonious with the character of their faithful and more suited to the promotion of the good of souls. And I won't read out the Unitatis Red Integratio one because it's basically word for word identical. So, um, so again, these are not what people think of as being the substantial, important teachings of Vatican II, but they are. They are the most important things defined by Vatican II. And what has really, really happened is that an event 
uh, a few ambiguous phrases which are not ambiguous in context uh, and the event and all the kind of innovations surrounding the liturgy and facing the people and the vernacular and ending of these important customs like the, the uh, abstaining from meat on Fridays, they became the story for uh, the vast majority of Catholics. And for them, it just seemed like a massive repudiation of, uh, of, the, um, of the tradition of the church and a giving up on the idea that the church, what the church is teaching is correct. Another famous, um, or is, is reliable, another famous uh, ambiguous thing is, is the subsistit, uh, that the, 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 the true church of Christ subsists in the Catholic church. But again, read in context, it just means that there are elements of it which are inadequate, uh, which exist outside of the hierarchical structure of the church, which is the hierarchical structure of church, which in exact accords with St. Robert Bellamy's description is laid out in the first two sentences of the decree on the Eastern churches, the, the famous trio vincula of hierarchical communion, sacramental uh, incorporation and uh, unity of faith is laid out there in Vatican II, more explicitly, I think, than anywhere else in, in, the, in, in the church's teaching documents. Um, so uh, it was the impression which was created, which had the, the devastating effect far more than, than uh, the actual content of the documents themselves. Um, but the fact that things were, were, were spiraling completely out of control became clear extremely quickly. I mean, the number of people who were lapsing, uh, the number of people who were increasing greatly, the number of people who were converting increasing greatly from, from a, while the council was still, sorry, de decreasing greatly, the number of converts, while the council was still in process. Um, uh, in 1965, a revised missile, which was a sort of generous, in the sense of broad application of what the liturgy document had said was produced, the 1965 missile, which people have pretty much forgotten about, which is which was gen generally thought to be the that was it. That was supposed to be the council had done its liturgical work, and you might like it or you might not. Um, uh, but it's it's not, you know, it's it's. I mean, I read through it once. I'm not particularly enthused about it, um, but uh, but it's it's vastly less dramatic. Than, uh, than what in fact actually finally occurred. Um, in 1967, uh, because the commission, which uh, Brunini was now back in charge of, having been removed from various positions just before the death of John the 23rd, he's now back in charge of the steering of the concilium, which is in charge of, of implementing the liturgical changes. Um, in 1967, on the 24th of October, the Metropolitan Archbishops of the World were summoned to Rome uh, and to see uh, what they called the Missa Normativa, which was basically the first draft of the new rite of mass that Bunini had been working on in the meantime, which was a much more dramatic alteration of the liturgy compared to the 1965 Missal. I mean, you could essentially celebrate, you could do everything that the Vatican II document on the liturgy says needs to be done within the rubrics of the Roman Missal as it was in 1962. You wouldn't strictly have had to make any legal alterations at all. Um, the 1965 text is much more dramatic a change, but the 1967, which is largely the same as the as the final version that comes out on the first Sunday of Advent 1969, is, 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 is so dramatic a change as not really to represent an implementation of the liturgy constitution. It has to be said, and and Ratzinger again had some very negative things to say about it. I mean, um, 
he, he moderated his language at different times, but I think when he'd had a few drinks, he tended to get uh, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more fruity. So, so he famously said in, in the introduction to um, uh, a work by Monsignor Klaus Gamba that he wrote, Ratzinger said, we abandoned, about the 69 missile, he said, we abandoned the organic living process of growth and development over centuries and replaced it as in a manufacturing process with a fabrication, a banal on-the-spot product. <clears throat> I mean, that is extremely strong language. Um, but again, I mean, uh, I, I don't think you can defend the 69 missile as an implementation of the liturgy constitution, um, independently of whether it's defensible in the abstract. Uh, even just considered as an implementation, it's not an implementation, it goes considerably beyond that. But <clears throat> a little bit like the council documents, although to a more extreme degree, um, uh, you can celebrate it in such a way that to, to the non-liturgically astute observer, it would look an awful lot like a solemn mass uh, a la 1962, uh, because the rubrics allow it to be celebrated ad orientum and entirely in Latin and entirely with the Gregorian chant, as in fact it was uh, this Missa Normativa first outing in 1967. But in fact, the major um, <clears throat> it was rejected by that synod. Um, they said, um, uh, some of them, about a third of them said they accepted it, about a third of them rejected it, and about a third of them said they accepted it with changes. Uh, if, if that vote had gone through an ecumenical council, the document would have been retired um, because, because that many um, uh, Platchet Juxtamodum votes would have, would have finished off the document. Um, <clears throat> Paul VI already realized that there was serious problems. Uh, the, the Holy Office, which by this point had been renamed um, uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, issued a circular letter to the presidents of Episcopal conferences regarding some sentences and errors arising from the interpretation of the decrees of the Second Vatican Council in 1966, July the 25th. Um, it's not, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't printed in millions of copies and left in the back of churches. The document, this document was circulated very discreetly, but it, it contained a list of, of serious problems that were arising from the uh, misinterpretation of the council. Um, and, um, and, and so it wasn't, you know, Paul VI realised that there was a problem and, and he said uh, later on, it was thought that after the council, this is his words, sunny days would come for the history of the church. Nevertheless, what came were days of clouds, of storms, of darkness, of searching and uncertainty, right? So, I mean, it's, it's um, uh, he realised at the time that there was, there, was, there was a real difficulty. And I mean, I think no reasonable person really um, who's looking at, who doesn't just want to see the church dissolved into a sort of non-dogmatic ecumenical porridge. Anyone who's actually loyal to the teachings of the church must realise that whatever they think the cause of it is, something went very, very badly wrong in the implementation of the Second Vatican Council. And I mean, we have the word of the Pope himself who promulgated all the documents that something went very badly wrong in the implementation. And there's, of course, again, another famous statement in, on the 29th of June, 1972, Paul VI said, from some fissure, the smoke of Satan has emptied the temple of God. You can't get much stronger than that. Of course, a very famous statement, Paul VI. Um, he tried to get the situation back under control in 1967. 1967 was the uh, centenary 
the 1900th, is it 1900th? Yes, anniversary of the martyrdom of St. Peter and St. Paul. And he uh, declared a special year of faith in which the uh, in which the unchanging faith of the church would be solemnly reasserted, and this was uh, a, a way of trying to get back control of the of the of the trolley before it went flying off the cliff, and um, uh, and Maritain, who of course who Paul VI translated his integral humanism into Italian, Maritain uh, Paul VI was an enormous admirer of Maritain. He he handed him the message of the council to uh, to scholars in the closing ceremony of the council. So Maritain had a very prominent role. Um, and in fact, the reason why um, the Declaration on Religious Liberty was altered in such a way as for it no longer to be in conflict with Catholic doctrine after John Courtney Murray dropped out of the drafting um, was because Paul VI and a number of other bishops were Maritanians and Maritain have a ill-conceived, one might think his integral humanism philosophy was, it, he was trying very carefully to avoid it being formally in conflict with the, the defined teaching of the church. Um, so it had a big impact. In the course of this uh, year of faith, uh, Maritain got in touch with Cardinal Journey, who was another disciple of his, uh, and suggested that he bring to the Pope's attention the idea of having um, a creed, just like at the end of Trent, there had been the creed of Pius IV, which was solemnly proclaimed by Pius IV, and which remains the last um, creedal statement solemnly defined by the church together with the oath against modernism and which had been uh, solemnly reaffirmed at the beginning of Vatican I and one of the problems with Vatican II and the psychology of the Council of Fathers was that they didn't choose to make a solemn reassertion of the faith as hitherto defined at the beginning of the council, which had always been traditionally done at the beginning of ecumenical councils. If you look at, look at a lot of the early councils, they go over what all the counts, previous councils are that they recognise and what things they defined. And the Council of Florence does that as well. Um, and uh, Trent had done it, and then Vatican I had done it, but Vatican II didn't do it. So, so uh, which of course created this sense that there was room, more room for innovation than might have been healthy. And um, uh, in fact, um, uh, there are some terrible speeches by some of the council fathers, which they just got away with saying later on in the council. There was one father who said how important it was that we incorporate the insights of Teilhard de Chardin. This is a man who, who um, yeah, was basically a, a, an admirer of, of, of the Nazis' experimentations on kids in concentration camps, uh, wanted to breed the master race and... Um, uh, and had a, has an official uh, munition against him issued by the Holy Office. Anyway, one of the Council of Others said how we needed to incorporate uh, many of his insights um, uh, because we can't we can't be be found on the wrong side of history again, like we were with Galileo, Marx, and Freud. And you're like, what? Okay, I'm okay with the sun the Earth revolving around the sun, but not not with Freud and Marx. Thank you very much. But nobody really did anything about the guy giving the speech. The Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna gave a speech in which he denied the inerrancy of scripture and gave a list of what he alleged to be the errors in scripture. And everyone just sort of embarrassedly said nothing, looked at their feet. Um, so, I mean, things were, in this respect, in a serious state. Um, and so, uh, so Journey told Paul VI that... Um, uh, 
this suggestion of Maritans, that there should be a creed to sum up the faith of the church with the additional definitions of Vatican II included um, in order to ensure that, uh, that, that people realized that, that there was no fundamental change in what the church was teaching. And uh, Paul VI asked Journey what sort of, to ask Maritain what sort of thing he had in mind. And Maritain said, well, as it happens, I did draft something and, and handed over this, this draft document that he put together, which Paul VI, I think, made only two very minor changes to and then just promulgated as it was, uh, as the credo of the people of God on the 30th of June, 1968. But he didn't solemnly define it. Now, I think there are one or two ambiguous phrases in that document. So in some ways, it might be a good thing that he didn't suddenly define it, but it did mean that um, it didn't achieve the purpose which it might have done. He specifically says in the in the document that he isn't solemnly defining it. Um, so as a result, it doesn't um, it doesn't squish the super dogma misinterpretation of Vatican II as having relativized and set aside the entire previous tradition, um, and then. Uh, less than a month later, on uh, the 25th of July, 1968, uh, Paul VI promulgated Humana Vitae on licit and illicit methods of regulating births. Um, and this had this question of essentially whether the pill counted as a contraceptive, because it had already been defined in Casti Canubi by Pius XI that uh, artificial contraception was intrinsically immoral. Um, but the, but some people had argued, and, and everybody uh, who gets enthusiastic about the pill since then has completely forgotten that the people who were trying to water down the church's teaching at this point uh, were not claiming that the uh, contraception was okay. They were claiming that the pill wasn't really a contraceptive, which nobody maintains now. It's absolutely ridiculous, absurd, uh, Jesuitical arguments that, that, that nobody could possibly believe that the pill isn't really a concept. Actually, uh, it's actually a confectionery item, which which uh, which which weirdly causes you not to have any babies. Um, that's just a total surprise. I mean, that's a slight overstatement of how absurd the argument was, but not but not that much of an overstatement. Um, and uh, because Paul VI, in keeping with his nickname from Pius the Twelfth, R. Hamlet, uh, delayed and delayed and delayed to make a final determination on this question. And because people all over the world, because of the big liturgical changes and changes in fasting and the, some of the ambiguities in some of the documents, believed that the church had overthrown its belief in the inerrancy of scripture and the necessity of faith in Christ for salvation, they obviously thought, well, if we can get rid of believing in our Lord as necessary salvation and get rid of the inerrancy of scripture, then we can certainly allow the contraceptive pill so that we can save a little bit of money and buy an extra car and a bigger house. So, and that's what all the priests were thinking, and that's what they told everybody. Um, and uh, there's a book by Frank Sheed, the famous evangelist, um, uh, called Is It Still the Same Church, which was written before Humana Vitae came out, which shows you some of the state of ferment that was going on at the time. And, uh, and in that, he's desperately covering his bets about the question of contraception because he doesn't know which way it's going to go. So it wasn't felt as if, oh, soon Paul VI will confirm what we've always known anyway. Instead, it was thought, ooh, the, the change is coming soon. And so, obviously, uh, when the document came out, there was massive revolt against it, including from many bishops. Um, uh, and, and Paul VI was utterly shocked by it, didn't know what to do, and didn't really discipline the people who did revolt against it. And he never wrote another encyclical until the day he died. 
Um, and he started making all these strange comments at Wednesday audiences about how dreadful everything was and how he'd been hoping that things were going to get better and it hadn't really worked out that way. So I think the poor fellow was extremely gloomy for the remaining 10 years of his life. Um, and uh, so I think it was Cardinal Manning who said at the time of the first Vatican Council that um, rumours were being put around by Protestants and liberals that the church was going to radically alter her teaching in order to make it more acceptable to the modern mind and to the sensibilities of Protestants. And that this was obviously ridiculous and was impossible and couldn't happen. But that, um, uh, but that what they hoped to achieve by putting, creating this impression would be to break forever the power of Catholicism over the imaginations of men, because they would think that if the Catholic Church has contradicted herself, then she can't be infallible, and therefore it's all doesn't matter, and we might as well all pack up and go home. And, and Vatican I was vociferous in its, um, in its statements, as such that this rumour was utterly squished um, in the event. But because Vatican II was attempting to be more friendly and positive in its presentation, it opened the possibility to those with more unpleasant agendas to at least create the impression of a, of a significant overthrow of Catholic doctrine. And it did lead to a very large um, alteration to Catholic practice, um, most controversial in regard to the mass. Um, and in fact, one of the things that would have been helpful about reaffirming the Creed of Pius IV at the beginning of the council is that one of the paragraphs in the Creed of Pius IV uh, um, the uh, the person reciting it states that they they unreservedly accept the received and approved rights of the church in the solemn administration of the sacraments uh, which would have been healthy for the council fathers to have stated at the beginning of the council so um i think uh, yeah in some ways i think going back to the documents and pointing out that the actually definitive parts of them and even the rest of them as interpreted in the light of the whole uh, contain nothing which is novel or problematic for the church uh, that is worthwhile but on the other hand it's also important that we shouldn't fall victim to the super dogma account of the nature of, this, of the council uh, yes we can argue back to the, to the catholic faith against the liberals and neo-modernists uh, on the basis of the council documents themselves but the point is that we shouldn't have to because the, the council did not and could not relativize or relegate to an appendix the whole of the tradition up to the point at which it was convened um, and uh, i think benedict XVI was slightly trying to make that point uh, in his encyclical Space Salvi, uh, not with anything particularly that he says in, in Space Salvi, but Space Salvi is the first significant papal document since the Second Vatican Council that doesn't quote or cite the Second Vatican Council at all in the course of uh, its entire text. And I, I expect that was quite deliberate on Pope Benedict XVI's part because he wanted to say, look, you know, this is one of 21 ecumenical councils. And once it is reinserted, in its proper place within the tradition and within those 21 councils and all the other definitive statements of teaching that the church has produced, then it can make a wholesome and positive contribution to the revival of the church and the undoing of some of the unbelievable harm that the myth of the Second Vatican Council, uh, which was being manufactured while it was going on, uh, has managed to bring about. Um, and so there we are, until Lateran VI, the 22nd Ecumenical Council, for which we all daily pray, um, uh, these questions will continue to rage around the church. But I must say, I, I think people, there's been a vogue recently 
for people to say that somehow Vatican II could be set aside. And I think that's a very bad and dangerous thing to say. It's a fully valid ecumenical council, which, as I say, contains 10 or 11 definitive uh, statements of Catholic doctrine. Um, and to say that we could set it aside would be to concede the logic of those neo-modernists who think they can set aside the other 20. Um, and so, so it has to be faced up to and interpreted in accordance with the tradition um, uh, without having to agree with all of its prudential decisions uh, any more than we have to agree that the Albigensians should have been ethnically cleansed by order of Lateran IV um, uh, or that the Templars should have been burnt at the stake by order of uh, Vienne. Um, uh, so we um, but we, we need to slot it in properly in a proper Catholic understanding of ecumenical councils and make positive use of the contributions which it has made and not panic and, uh, and surrender the irreformability of the magisterium into the hands of our neo-modernist enemies. Um, so there we are. Well, he is Dr. Alan Finister. This was a fantastic series. Uh, <laughs> uh, Doc, appreciate it. Everyone sent him some thank you notes and financial help, all that. Uh, hopefully we'll try, maybe I'll try to convince them to do some, something else with us, <laughs> but, uh, until ladder and six. <laughs> <laughs> <See you there. laughs>